Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where we have unusually in-depth conversations about the world's most pressing problems, what you can do to solve them, and my favorite clips from 2012 late-night comedy shows. I'm Rob Wiblin, Head of Research at 80,000 Hours. Last year, my colleague Arden Kaler wrote a post that listed over 30 pressing global issues, uh, beyond the ones that we talk the most about, issues that we thought our audience uh, should perhaps consider focusing their career on tackling. One of those 30 was safeguarding liberal democracy. In that short piece, uh, Arden noted that a great deal of effort uh, already goes into understanding the conditions under which liberal democracy is typically strengthened, uh, the ways in which it can get undermined, and the reality that we didn't really know uh, what was the most effective way to help. So continuing our theme of exploring uh, new problem areas, uh, we wanted to find out what could be done uh, in practice from someone actually working in the area. Uh, When we asked around, it seemed like one of the best people in the world to talk to about this uh, would be today's guest, Mike Berkowitz. Uh, a philanthropic advisor who works on ensuring that the U.S. remains a liberal democratic country for the long term. To my knowledge, this is the first long-form interview that Mike has uh, ever done, uh, and I think we have uncovered a, uh, a real gem here. He's both uh, highly informed uh, and a great speaker. In the conversation, Mike and I cover his picks for the three most important levers uh, that people could try to push on to shore up the political situation in the United States. Uh, and those are, firstly, reforming the political system, such as introducing new voting methods, Uh, Secondly, revitalizing local journalism. Uh, And thirdly, reducing partisan hatred uh, within the United States. We also talk about what sort of terrible scenarios we should actually be worried about, how to reduce the incentives uh, for representatives to attempt to overturn election results, the best opportunities for charitable giving uh, in this space, uh, and much more besides. If you're curious, uh, you can find those dozens of other uh, potentially pressing global issues that Arden wrote about at 80,000hours.org slash problem hyphen profiles. Finally, uh, yep, your eyes do not deceive you. The show has a new logo. Uh, Kieran and I hope that you like it. All right, without further ado, here's Mike Berkowitz. Today, I'm speaking with Mike Berkowitz. Since 2010, he has led Third Plateau, an advisory group for impact-oriented philanthropists focused on social and political problems in the United States. He is a certified philanthropy consultant and has counseled numerous individual donors, family foundations, and institutional foundations on their philanthropic strategy. More recently, in response to the rise of political populism in the United States, Mike has become the executive director of the Democracy Funders Network, a community of major U.S. donors concerned about the underlying health of American democracy. He has also co-founded Patriots and Pragmatists, a cross-partisan coalition of donors, writers, and advocates focused on ensuring the U.S. remains a liberal democratic country. Many years ago, he studied history at Brown University, and today, as you might guess from the above, Mike is focused on helping donors figure out how they can use their resources to ensure the U.S. remains a functional democracy. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Mike. Thanks for having me. I hope to get to talk about the uh, work that you've been doing over the last four years and how listeners might be able to help with your mission. Uh, but first, what are you working on at the moment and why do you think it's important? Yeah, so I'll start actually with a couple of things that, that you already touched on. You know, broadly speaking, as, as you noted, my work at the moment is really focused on sustaining liberal democracy in the United States for the next 50 to 100 years which is uh, a big challenge that I'm excited to talk more about today. You know, one mechanism that I'm doing that through is a group called Patriots and Pragmatists. We refer to it as PNP. A PNP is a cross-ideological network and convening space for civic leaders and influencers to make some sense together of what's happening to American democracy and, and what to do about it. It emerged actually organically after the 2016 election when one of my clients and colleagues and friends, Rachel Pritzker, and I realized that there was nowhere to go to engage in an ongoing strategic conversation about American democracy across disciplinary and ideological lines. 
And the, the key insight here was that when it comes to saving democracy, that can't be something that only happens on one side of the political spectrum. It, if it does, then democracy is as polarized a political issue as, as anything else. And we can talk more about whether that is the case at the moment. The political scientists Daniel Zeblad and Steve Levitsky in this great book, How Democracies Die, talk about this, actually. And they say that the way that you save democracy is not through coalitions of, of the like-minded. It's through coalitions that bring together people with, with dissimilar views. And so that's been a, a key part of my work. The Democracy Funders Network emerged from patriots and pragmatists as more and more donors came to realize that American democracy is not a, it's not a guarantee. It's actually something we need to fight for. And so we're a cross-ideological a learning and action community for donors who are concerned about the health of American democracy. So those are the, the kind of big projects that I'm working on at the moment. What are the kind of sorts of future terrible scenarios that you're trying to help avoid becoming real, just to try to make things concrete? It's a, it's a great question because I think, you know, one can be overly or properly alarmist about these questions. And I, I try to be properly alarmist about them. <laughs> I, I don't think that the threat is a dictatorship or totalitarian state as, as we saw in the 20th century. You know, we don't see in the decline of democracy or the deterioration or deconsolidation, as uh, political scientists refer to it, of democracy around the world. We don't see a lot of violent conflict. We don't see coups or revolutions we actually see a much more kind of subtle chipping away at the foundations of liberal democracy. So the things that worry me are kind of a version of illiberal democracy, where we might have elections, but we don't have some of the protections of small L liberalism, the rule of law, separation of powers, individual rights, you know, things like that. Um, or we might think about it as sort of a, a soft authoritarianism. Those are the things that I'm worried about. And, 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 you know, we see them in other states around the world. You see these things in places like Russia, Turkey, Brazil. You might have elections, but are they free and fair? You might have separation of powers on paper. But as we are seeing in the United States, more and more power is being vested in the executive branch. I worry about restrictions on civil society that we see around the world, the consolidation of media into the hands of the few. These are the kinds of things that I worry about much more so than, you know, a, a sort of prototypical 20th century authoritarian state. Yeah. How much do you worry about trends like, say, uh, significant increases in voter suppression or, say, you know, significant increases in, in gerrymandering or perhaps state legislatures taking over the role of appointing the Electoral College such that, you know, there's still elections, but they're significantly less reflective of the views of the American uh, of the American public. Yeah, so I'll say two things here. So one is just as a contextual point, because I think it often gets lost in discussions about democracy. I want to say that democracy is about more than just voting. And one of the challenges that I think we had prior to 2016 is our conception of what a healthy democracy looked like in the United States was pretty narrow. We thought a lot about voting, gerrymandering, campaign finance. We didn't think a lot about the issues that the United States was actually working abroad to help countries do to, to develop their democracies. And so just to, to put that in perspective a little bit. But the second thing that I would say is I'm really concerned about efforts to, to suppress the vote, 
to create, you know, minoritarian rule in the country. And I think that there are a lot of ways in which the efforts that we're seeing at the state level in a variety of states, there's over 250 bills that have been introduced this year across 43 states to roll back voting rights, to uh, to make it harder for people to participate in democracy and to warp what representation looks like. I think those are real threats and they are, to your point, characteristics of elections that are not quite free and fair. Yeah. What motivated you to switch into working on on this issue? I I think beforehand you'd been doing more traditional kind of progressive campaigning or campaigning in favor of issues that the Democratic Party uh, supported. But you've kind of now moved on to something that is aiming to be significantly less less partisan than that. Yeah. So, um, you know, one one of the major kind of disjunctures for me in, in my career was actually I had um, started out really in, in politics. I'd done some some work on political campaigns, including on John Kerry's presidential campaign in 2004 as a consultant. And when Kerry lost, I realized that I really wanted to focus on long-term efforts to create political and social and cultural change. I didn't want to just work on campaigns where if you lost, you had nothing to show for, for your efforts. And so I got really involved in building the progressive movement and building what we refer to as progressive infrastructure. I was a consultant to a group called the Democracy Alliance, which is a network of major progressive philanthropists from its launch in 2005 up until about 2009. And that work was really intended you know, to, to strengthen the ability of the progressive movement to create change on the issues that we care about. You know, I left that work to start my own firm in 2010 with a kind of broader mandate than just working in progressive politics. But there was also something about the experience of being part of an ideological community. You know, while I still believe deeply in the issues that we were working on, it, it in some ways felt intellectually stifling and a little bit narrow. So I was probably predisposed when the 2016 election came around to be thinking about it, not just in in conventional partisan terms. And this was the most striking thing to me, actually, about 2016, is there weren't that many of us that fell into that camp. There were certainly a number, and interestingly, they were on both left and right. But what really led me into democracy work was a sense that we weren't taking the threat seriously enough, that we were only really looking at it as a society or within, you know, the progressive movement that I had come out of in very conventional terms. People were talking about how Democrats were going to win in 2018 and 2020. And while that was really important, I felt like we needed to pay attention to some of the deeper drivers and deeper challenges that were afflicting American politics and democracy. What have you thought about the uh, the events over the last six months? I guess I'm particularly thinking of the protests or uh, the riots on the, on the on the 6th of January. I suppose it suggests that there's a, there's a lot more work to do and maybe you haven't, uh, we're nowhere near fixing these these issues. But I suppose it suggests that you've maybe been, been prescient in uh, five years ago, uh, getting on board with issues that just only seem to have become more, more pressing over time. You know, it's interesting because I think on the one hand, it, it does feel somewhat prescient. And on the other hand, one didn't need to be particularly prescient. Uh, and this is, you know, to go back to alarmism, one only needed to be properly alarmist to see what was happening. Mm. You know, I don't want to say that January 6th was inevitable, but for those of us who were paying attention, we knew that something like that was going to happen. And, and I'll just say this in, in sort of two ways. 
One is that we knew that there was going to be a continued rise in political violence. And we can talk a bit more later about some work that, that I helped to do that really started to take seriously the issue of political violence within the United States. But those of us who were engaged in that work knew that that, that would happen and that elections in particular are flashpoints, as we've seen around the world, for violence and, and in particular for political violence. And so it was somewhat inevitable in that respect. The other way is that, you know, we knew that there was going to be some contestation of the election results by Donald Trump. He had telegraphed that quite clearly going back all the way to 2016. And I'd been involved in a a number of efforts to really think through what that might look like and what it might do to our politics and to our society. And so the events of January 6th in some ways were, again, an almost inevitable culmination of an attempt to say that the election was was stolen by the person who was about, you know, to, to have his uh, electoral victory certified, as it were, by, by Congress. So I, I find what happened on January 6th really disturbing. In some ways, the most disturbing part to me, though, is the way in which it, too, has become a polarizing partisan issue that there are folks on the on the left, you know, who sort of properly can see what what, you know, that set of events were. There are some folks on the right, but the large majority of the Republican Party is is in some version of denialism about that, you know, with the former president, even as as recently as a week or so ago, you know, claiming that there was no real violence associated with with January 6th. We saw Senator Ron Johnson from Wisconsin make you know comments that he felt comfortable on January 6th because he knew the people who were coming in. So it's it's disturbing not just for the set of factors that led to it or what it produced itself in terms of death and destruction or or the you know the symbolic challenge that it, it offers around the world, but it, it's also the reaction to it that causes me a lot of concern and leads me to agree with with your point that we're not out of the woods in any sense of the word. Yeah, the, the polling I've seen suggests that, like, if, if you survey a broad cross section of Americans, that the great majority of them have a negative view of of what the rioters were doing on on the sixth of January. But it seems like you know there is a a meaningful minority, I guess, most overwhelmingly Republicans, who have either a delusional view or think that what that they recognize what happened and, and think that it's good. It's very scary to see. It seems like most elected Republicans are siding with that group, I guess, because they're most worried about that group because they're the most activist and the the most likely to primary them or or, or, or hassle them. So even if they're going against like the, the views of 70% of the population, they're kind of cowed by this, by this very vocal minority. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, I hesitate to make any guesses as to what is going on in the minds of Republican politicians these days. But I think it is clear enough that they are really scared of the base. And, you know, not without some cause. If if your goal is to maintain power, then, you know, it's it's reasonable, even though I think it's the, the wrong calculus on, on many levels, moral, ethical, and otherwise. It's the wrong calculus to make to, to be cowed by them. But it is it is a real factor and it is a, a real force. And I think it's leading to all sorts of bad behaviors. And in some ways, this, I think, is one of the key challenges that we face in American democracy, at least right now, which is that it should be clear and obvious that if a member of your party is breaking from 
the norms, traditions, values, institutions of liberal democracy, that that's an opportunity for you to break away from that person or that set of actors and not just to stick with them because they have your your party or your tribe's uh, you know name next to next to theirs. But that's not what's happening. What's happening is that democracy really is becoming polarized. And we see people largely sticking with their political coalitions, not entirely. And this is where I think there's some opportunity. But by and large, they're they're sticking with their coalitions. And just to put it you know, really bluntly, Republican voters are largely staying with the party, even though it is abandoning a lot of the principles that this country was built on and that Republicans you know, care deeply about, as far as I can tell, up, up until the last you know, decade or so. Yeah, in a minute, we're going to zoom out to the bigger picture and hear what you think should should be done with this 50 or 100 year timescale perspective. But yeah, to begin with, let, let's continue thinking about the concrete situation that we're in now with, with Trump and the 2020 election and the, and the fight over its legitimacy. How, how important do you think Trump's loss was in the general global fight against kind of democratic decay that we're seeing today? I think it was very important. The scholar Yasha Monk has said, I think correctly, that we, we don't often have the chance to defeat authoritarian populists. And so just to see it happen and to see the, the massive effort, you know, both obviously on the political side, but even just on the civil society side, where folks were, were fighting not against Donald Trump, but to protect the norms, values, and institutions of American democracy. I mean, there's a lot to learn from that. And so I think symbolically, in that sense, it was really, really key. It's also key because Yasha and others have pointed out that it's really in their second terms that authoritarian populists start to really undermine democracy. And so we saw plenty of bad things in Trump's first term, but I would have been very worried about what we would see in the second. And, you know, we we saw this with Hugo Chavez. We saw it with Vladimir Putin. The gloves kind of come off after you get reelected. And so I think that's that's another reason why, you know, I'm very pleased to see that. I think it mattered a lot for democracy. That said, I think we shouldn't be sanguine about this. There was some really interesting but disturbing research that came out in, in 2018 in a paper by Rachel Kleinfeld and David Salimini, a paper called What Comes Next? Uh, Lessons for the Recovery of Liberal Democracy. And, you know, one of the key headlines there was that recovery from an authoritarian populace can take a really long time, decades. And uh, that often the leaders who are elected right after them face just such immense challenges that they become very unpopular and that leads to, you know, cycles that make it not a sort of, you know, you defeat an authoritarian populace and it's not a clean break. It, it gets very, very messy. So whatever one's assessment of, of Joe Biden and how he's doing so far, and I would say that he's, you know, from my vantage point, he's done pretty well. You know, I'm, I'm worried about the set of challenges that, that he faces I would have said that even if COVID hadn't added so much more to his plate and the racial justice reckoning adding so much more to his plate, just having to dig out from four years of an authoritarian populist, it's a really, really difficult measure. And so there's a lot of challenges that we still have to face that that mean that I think we should continue to be very vigilant and committed to these issues. Yeah, I find it interesting that you are really kind of focusing on the civil society aspect. 
I guess I feel like that's one area where Trump didn't seem to man- like he hasn't managed to gag the press. It seems like you know nonprofits, political groups are like more vocal than ever. It's not as if there's any any lack of opposition to to Trump and, and his views. And to be honest, I'm not even sure like how much they made a sincere effort to do things that would you know violate the violate the First Amendment. Yeah, what what, what does worry you about kind of decay in civil society? To me, it seems like reasonably reasonably healthy at the moment. Yeah, I I think I I agree with your point. I think there is a lot that we were concerned that the administration would do on the civil society front, in part because, you know, I think Donald Trump and uh, all of the forces that we're experiencing in the United States are part of a global trend of authoritarian populism that's manifesting in many countries, including, of course, in some ways in the UK and India and the Philippines, Hungary, Poland. So there is a a trend here, and in many of those countries and others, we see what's called closing space. We see greater restrictions on civil society, and we haven't seen a lot of that in the United States. Some of that, I think, is a little bit of a fluke of Donald Trump, which is that Donald Trump, in my estimation, was, was a little bit lazy. He wasn't really committed in the ways that I worry about the next demagogic leader in the United States. He wasn't really committed to the agenda of undermining democracy with with quite the verve that that he could have. You know, he was almost instinctively authoritarian, as as others have have said. And so, yeah, they didn't go as far, uh, nearly as far as, as I worry that they could have. You know, that said, there were some attempts for instance, to limit uh, the ability of, of groups to organize on national land, some, some restrictions in, in terms of free speech, and certainly a lot of rhetorical elements that I think made it you know, really clear sort of how the former president felt about certain communities and civil society organizations and efforts. So it was rhetorically pretty, pretty bad, I would say with some intermittent attempts to, to restrict rights. But, but by and large, it wasn't nearly as bad as, as it could have been. How much do you worry about lack of interest in democratic principles among people on the, on the left and the progressive movement, or, or centrists as well, I guess? Like, to what extent does this cover the political spectrum? Yeah, this is where I think it's useful to understand the term liberal democracy. To, to cite Yasha Monk again, you know, in, in his book, The People vs. Democracy, he really pulls these two concepts that go together and that make up you know, what, what we think of as democracy in, in places like the United States and the UK, but he pulls these two concepts apart. So if we take democracy, democracy is, is about participation in the electoral and decision-making processes by the people. And of course, in the United States, we're actually a representative democracy or a republic, so our participation as people is mediated through elected representatives. But the liberalism part is about a set of of commitments to principles like freedom of speech, the rule of law, separation of powers, individual rights. And it's it's that piece where I think the left can can slip a bit. I, I don't see I don't see the left slipping on its commitment to democracy. I think, you know, many of us on the left would like to see more democracy, more participation in politics, of course. But the, the liberalism piece is, is where I think there are more challenges. And I, I don't want to say that these are symmetric in any way. I think that the challenges from the right to both sides of, of liberalism and democracy are, are much greater. 
But I, I do worry about, you know, some of the, the things that we see on the left. I, I don't love the term cancel culture, but I, I think there is clearly something happening in progressive spaces and in spaces that are heavily influenced by progressive voices that whatever the motivations and intentions, and I tend to think that those motivations and intentions are quite good in trying to actually create a better society, that there are ways in which we are moving away from some of the the commitments to small L liberalism that I think are really fundamental to the kind of, of government and the kind of system of norms and, and values that I'd like to see the United States, you know, continue to be committed to. So I, I do worry about that. Do you think Trump did basically everything that he was able to do to try to undermine the election result and remain in power? Or, or do you think to some extent we got lucky that he didn't go further and, and perhaps the effort wasn't quite as sincere as it might have looked on, on the surface? Yeah, I'm, I'm torn on this question because I think on the one hand, he went pretty far, but he went pretty far without violating any laws. Maybe one could quibble about that point a little bit. But, you know, he didn't try to overturn the the results of, of any of the judicial decisions. Um, you know, most of uh, the large majority of them in the post-election environment, which didn't go his way, some in the pre-election environment, many that didn't go his way. You know, that was a thing that, that people were worried about. He wasn't able to mobilize law enforcement. We were really concerned about what he might do with, uh, with DHS. We saw a version of this in, in Portland last summer and fall. And I think there was a lot of concern that we would see a kind of similar mobilization of law enforcement communities that he had a bit more sway over. I, I, there wasn't a lot of real concern that the military was, was going to do anything. But so he didn't you know, as far as we understand, he he didn't try to go as far as we worried that he might in that regard. But he also continues to contest, at least rhetorically, the outcome of the election. And he led that all the way up to the certification in, in Congress. And again, we've we've talked about what that resulted in, in you know, in, in, in the halls of Congress on January 6th, which he was stoking you know, that very day until some of his advisors somewhat haphazardly convinced him to walk it back a bit. So did we get lucky? Maybe, you know, there there may be, as I was alluding to earlier, a version of laziness that, that helped out here. But I would say at the end of the day, he was pretty much constrained and, and stayed within those constraints by law. And it's also worth noting that the Republican actors who he was trying to pressure, people like Brad Raffensperger and Brian Kemp in Georgia and Mike Pence, you know, the 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 line that they wouldn't cross either was what their legal obligations were. So what worries me going forward here is when those legal obligations change. And, you know, we were talking earlier about the voting rights laws that are, are you know, being rolled back and, and many of the, the bills to, to really restrict voter access that's happening at the state level. The other things that those bills are doing is, is trying to shift power, you know, to more partisan bodies. So there was this Georgia bill that passed last week, I believe it was, that takes away some of the powers of the Georgia Secretary of State. Well, why is that the case? It's clearly retribution for Brad Raffensperger. It also clearly will mean that next time around, when it's Donald Trump or someone else, 
trying to overturn the results of the election, I think they might get much farther than Donald Trump did in 2020. Yeah, I think we have to be incredibly thankful to people like Raffensperger. People in positions uh, like his basically risked their lives, their careers, or took on enormous amounts of abuse in order to, in effect, to like ensure that probably you know politicians who they incredibly disagree with on the issues were elected because they thought it was their legal and moral and, and, and patriotic obligation. And it is really quite terrifying that there are efforts to oust people like that so that next time the people who are making these calls about whether to throw the US into a kind of constitutional crisis are going to be far more partisan and, and might just not be willing to do that. Yeah, you can imagine in 2024, if you have a very close election and there's all of these all of these bodies and individuals who are partisan actors potentially like casting doubt or like throwing out the results of the election in effect, where, where, where that could lead things. Yeah, and I mean, I think this really illustrates the distinction between norms and laws, which yeah. is a, a problem we really came to realize throughout the Trump presidency that so many of the things that we thought were law were actually just custom. And once you had someone who didn't feel any obligation to abide by those customs, they went away. You apply that lens to the actions that we saw by Republican politicians, in particular in the aftermath of the 2020 election. And it's quite interesting because, as I said, you know, folks who were asked to to violate the law didn't do it. People who could violate longstanding norms without breaking laws Many of them did. And that's how I, I think about the actions of the, you know, 150 or so members of, of Congress who, you know, who voted not to accept the, the results of, of particular state elections. There was no consequence to them to doing that. And so I don't know what the right thing is in, in this particular realm going forward. But one of the things that I do think is going to be really important for protecting American democracy going forward is to do more hardening of norms into laws so that we give actors in the system a, a, a bit less opportunity to violate customs that are there for good reason. Some of them are not. You know, I'm, I'm all for re, reimagining our, our norms, but some of them are, are really important. They, they are what actually upholds our system. So we need some combination of the moral courage you know, that, that we saw exhibited by, by some re- Republican politicians, in particular this last cycle, who did, as you said, put their, their political careers, sometimes their lives and their families' lives, in some jeopardy. On the other hand, they did it because it was their job and it was the law. And I think the more hardening of, of norms that we can do within reason, the more people will be able to take those politically courageous stands. Yeah. So I guess it is it is hard to know exactly what Republican members of Congress think, but I imagine that many who voted to effectively ignore the election results or to, or to throw them out, in fact, didn't believe that the election was fraudulent and were doing it just to save their skin and to avoid getting getting primaried in, in, in future elections. Is there anything that we can do to improve the incentives that senators and, and Congress uh, people face so that they are less likely? Because I mean, it does just impossible that in a future election, like what what if you do end up with a really unhinged, you know, elected group in in the House of Representatives, and they decide that it's just they they don't want to lose their seats, and so they're going to vote to overturn the election result. It's 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 pretty terrifying. So this is where I think both political leadership and political structures and incentives really do matter. On the one hand, one can look at leadership here and say, if Donald Trump hadn't been making the claim and pushing others to make the claim that the election was stolen, we wouldn't have seen hardly any of the actors who 
abided by that falsehood do so last year. I just really don't think we would have seen that. Donald Trump's popularity and power within the Republican Party also forced their hand to some extent. Again, I think it was the wrong calculus on many levels, but he really did box many Republican politicians in by by taking that position. But to your point, this is also where incentives and structures really do matter. And I think we've we've realized that even the best politicians, even the most courageous and moral and ethical ones are working within a system that has particular uh, incentives to it. And so there's a lot of political reform efforts that are out there right now that are really looking at this question. For instance, there was just a report that came out, I believe it was called The Primary Problem by a group called Unite America, just, just out this week. And they really talk about the problem of partisan primaries, where you have the most ideologically committed voters within a party turn out in what's almost always a low, uh, low turnout election. This is, this is the way primary elections are. And the incentives then, if you are trying to win a partisan primary, are to be more partisan. You're trying to get your base. And so therefore, you kind of wind up with more ideologically extreme candidates in general elections. And again, because people largely vote based on the hat that they wear, the, you know, the R or the D in American democracy next to a candidate's name, it almost doesn't matter how extreme a candidate is in many districts because those districts are so safe they're going to win regardless. So I do think political reforms are important here. I'm a little agnostic personally about which which ones. We could talk more about this, but I, I do think some reforms to the system are, are really key to get at the, the structures there as well. The primary thing is is, is very notable. It, I, as far as I know, I think all of the Republicans who voted to convict Trump either were retiring or weren't going to face the primary election any any anytime soon. And I guess, I, yeah, I come from uh, Australia and now live in the UK, which are two countries where largely we don't have political primaries. Parties appoint candidates. And in general, they tend to choose candidates who are pretty close to the center of the seats that they're running for, because that makes them most likely to get elected in the party, therefore most likely to hold power. So it creates this kind of centrist tendency to not have, you know, a small minority of five or 10% of people in a seat choosing choosing who the candidates are on either extreme. So the primary thing is a little bit harder in the US because, because of your first past the post system, which Australia doesn't have, there's an incredibly strong tendency to have only two parties, which then means that whoever would happen to end up controlling one of those two parties could then potentially have very outsized influence over who gets who, who gets selected, and that would have a degree of arbitrariness to it. We're, we're in Australia, and to some extent the UK, because it's a, a more multi-party system, it's possible to potentially get rid of a party that's not that's not representative in a way that's very hard in the US. But yeah, I suppose I would I would love to see a reduction in the frequency, I suppose, of uh, of these kind of uh, political primaries. Well, one option might be in the House of Representatives to just move to a cycle of only. I mean, the, the House of Representatives is very unusual in the modern world for having everyone elected every two years. That's very peculiar. I, I almost don't know a country that has like a national government re-elected that frequently. And potentially, you could move to a cycle where they, the primaries only occur every four or six years. Yeah, look, I think there's a, a, a lot of ways that we could reform the House of Representatives, our, our elections there, as well as elections you know, throughout the, the system. I mean, one reason that I am a bit agnostic on, on which reforms is I think, number one, there are some very, very smart people who I trust who are proponents for different reforms. You know, whether it's the ranked choice voting or, or having a multi-party system or, you know, something uh, along the lines of uh, final five voting. 
And so I kind of look at, at these very smart people who I trust and say, I don't know what the right answer is here. And therefore, I'm, I'm personally not going to be a proponent for, for one over the other. I think we should try them. You know, we have this federal system in the United States that gives us the ability to do things at the state level. And in fact, you know, our, our elections, even our national elections are actually state elections. And so there's a lot we can do to actually test these reforms and, and see what works. And I think we should do that. I also think that we need to recognize that any reform is going to have unintended consequences. And so we need to have a lot of humility as we think about these, these possibilities. And to your point about the UK and Australia, and obviously this goes for many other countries as well, there are other systems of government out there that are also facing real challenges you know, from authoritarian populism, for instance. And so this is where I think it's just an incredibly complex problem to think about. We need to, to change some of the structures and incentives in the United States, no doubt. And we also need to recognize that even some of the systems that we might want to emulate abroad are, are also facing real legitimacy crises, you know, real crises from authoritarian populism around the world. And so there's, there's no kind of easy uh, silver bullet solutions to, to these challenges. One thing that a lot of people, including me, were worried about last year would be that there would be large scale voter intimidation efforts at polling places. And it seems like that basically just didn't happen at all, despite, I guess, you know, meaningful threats that, that people were making to, to, to go and do this. Why do you think that that was? And is there a lesson here about like, it's very easy to get, I guess, hyperbolic and, and worry about absolutely everything. But sometimes we do have fears that just are not realized, like, you know, a Trump not really doing that much to, to restrict the media from criticizing him. How do we avoid worrying about kind of mirage uh, problems? Yeah, well, so one thing I don't think we should do is look at the 2020 election, for instance, and say, well, because we didn't see the kinds of voter intimidation problems on election day that we were expecting, at least not the magnitude, there certainly were some, that therefore we, we shouldn't have been alarmed. I mean, one, one could expand that to all sorts of things related to the functioning of the 2020 election. The thing that I was really worried about was that, you know, by broadly speaking, there would be chaos, that there would be intimidation and violence at polling places that people would be so confused by all of the different ways that they could vote, by the restriction of, of polling places. There were a lot of changes to election law last year. And of course, we're just voting during a pandemic. So we were really worried about chaos. And I refer to the 2020 election itself as a civic miracle, because most of the concerns that we had did not come to pass. But I don't look at that and say, well, we were overly alarmist. I look at it and say we were properly alarmist and we invested in lots of different areas within philanthropy and civil society to really try to prevent some of those worst case scenarios from happening. And, you know, there were lots of people in the system from, you know, really responsible media actors to civil society groups and philanthropists to election administrators who I think were really the heroes of, of 2020 to people who signed up to be poll workers. I mean, there were a lot of people who contributed, of course, to the, the smooth functioning of the election. But I think that at the end of the day, it was a combination of those collective efforts. And number one, number two, I think at the end of the day, Donald Trump was just such a polarizing figure that he really 
drove an incredible amount of turnout. I mean, it happened on the right as, as well as the left. But I think there were a lot of people who just weren't, they weren't going to stay home when Donald Trump was on the ballot. And so they overcame a lot of barriers that we might have seen otherwise. And then finally, I just think there were so many changes to voting laws that made it easier for people to participate that they just were going to show up and, and, and do it. And they were, you know, they were basically facilitated in participating by a lot of these rules that, that made it easier for them to do so. But, but why we didn't see more intimidation on election day is a little bit hard to say. I guess the, my, my only other supposition here is there were a lot of attempts on the right prior to the election itself, primarily using legal means to restrict voting rights and restrict voting access. Many of those attempts were, were thwarted in the courts. And so it may be that that was the kind of primary vehicle because it had some legitimacy behind it to, to trying to prevent voters from, from turning out in large numbers. And that come election day, the kinds of things, even in this crazy political environment that, you know, may have been acceptable in, in some places in, say, the 1960s, just really weren't acceptable now. And so we didn't see those kinds of, of, of attempts at the scale that we worried. But it's, it's a confusing, it's certainly a confusing picture. All I know is that we were, we were right to be alarmed. And I think that alarm uh, certainly contributed to a good outcome. Yeah, it is interesting that uh, despite the fact that and uh, maybe because of the fact that people are so concerned about voting access now, it's, it's possible that actually voting access is maybe as good as it's ever been because people maybe underestimate just how much voter suppression and just how many effort, yeah, how difficult it could be to vote, especially for some people in the in the in the, in the 50s and 60s. And in fact, the trend has mostly been in the, in the right direction over, over a long period of time. With the benefit of hindsight, are there any specific actions that you wish people had taken back in 2015 and 2016 in order to try to curtail this problem before it became worse? Yeah, I, I really wish the Republican Party had taken Donald Trump more seriously as as a candidate. I think they could have done that at, at multiple stages along the way, including when it became clear that he was going to be the nominee. You know, we, we I, I try not to make too many analogies to Nazi Germany, but I think there's, there is a really interesting analogy here, you know, from the, the early 1930s where von Papen convinces Hindenburg to appoint Hitler as chancellor and and himself as as vice chancellor. And Papen thinks that he's going to be able to control Hitler. And of course, he's not able to. And I do think there's an analogy that's worth understanding here in terms of the Republican Party's, at least in 2015 and 16, kind of orientation towards Donald Trump, which was even though I think there was a period of time where they simply just didn't take him seriously as a candidate, even once they came to take him seriously and when he became the nominee of the party, I think the reigning thinking at that point was, we'll be able to control this guy. And the lesson for me is you can't control someone who does not feel restrained by democratic norms and values. And I think it, it almost always you know, comes back to bite you when, when you try to do it. Instead, what happens, of course, is Donald Trump takes over the Republican Party and again, I don't, uh, I don't purport to have any idea of what's going on in the heads of, of Republican leaders right now. But I have to think that there was a point at which they really saw that as a bad thing, as, as not what they wanted for their party. And now, even if they might say that behind closed doors, 
they're certainly not doing anything to to counter Trump's supremacy within the Republican Party. So that's that's the only thing I, I I could imagine. I really don't know that there's much outside of the conservative or Republican coalition in 2015 and 2016 that that could have really been done differently. I think this is the kind of thing that was up to the right to do well, and I think they missed the critical opportunity to keep Trump and Trumpism contained, as, by the way, they had done very effectively, you know, not completely effectively, but but pretty effectively for many decades prior to that. It's not as if the Trumpist strain, even though it has particular manifestations, you know, in this political era, but it's it's not as if there wasn't that kind of anti-elitist populist thread you know, with with lots of uh, of white supremacy and and kind of other elements built into it that existed within the Republican coalition. But this is part of the point of of actually having political parties is that they can restrain and moderate, um, you know, the the more extreme fringes of their coalitions. It's it's really when you let those extreme voices take over that you have a problem. So that's that's what I wish had been done differently in in 2015 and 16. Okay, let's zoom out from just the the Trump era and think about kind of what can be done to show up the US system of government more generally. When you look at on all of the evidence out there, what are the strongest signs, I guess, other than these kind of topical events that there are like underlying social problems and a loss of confidence, a loss of robustness in kind of American democratic institutions? Yeah, so I think there's a number of ways to look at this. And, you know, my theory of the case is actually a, a meta theory, which is that I think the effort to protect democracy, to sustain it over the long term, is a wicked problem, which is to say deeply, deeply complex challenge that can be articulated in many different ways by many different smart people and therefore can have lots of of different solutions. But when I look out at the set of factors that we are facing right now, here's, here's what I see, and this is one of the reasons that I tend not to think that there's one or even two solutions that are just going to solve everything. I mean, we have had a dramatic decline in civic education and learning in this country. It used to be part of, of curricula, you know, throughout schooling, uh, certainly public schooling. It's really uh, gone away, and now there are, are attempts to, to revive it. We have the decline of local news, you know, over the last 20, 30, 40 years, Local newspapers, which were major sources of information for people and connected them to things that were happening in their communities, that were happening with their local elected representatives, you know, they've just been decimated um, by by changes in in media. That's a real problem, you know, in in terms of the kinds of information that people get and their connection and their their sense of connection and, and agency in American democracy. That's obviously, you know, runs parallel with a rise in in disinformation, which has always been a problem. But what we are facing now is, is, you know, really rapidly increasing speed when it comes to disinformation. It it travels much more quickly online. And and then we have kind of partisan broadcast channels, you know, talk radio, YouTube channels, obviously television stations like Newsmax, OAN. Fox News that, you know, that are really spreading this much more, more widely. We have a a new form of polarization in our politics, uh, which we refer to as toxic polarization, where 
we're not just fighting anymore on the issues. It's not just that we have really different views about abortion or gun control or democracy. It's that our identities are becoming stacked on top of our political differences. And so we have these really tribal differences. We no longer see one another as part of a a common project. And so it's no longer about how can we find compromise? It's about how can we defeat one another? Um, That's a, a really challenging situation. As we talked about earlier, we have bad political incentive structures. And, you know, we also have the diversification of the United States and other countries, which is causing a a kind of white identity backlash. So we have all of these things happening at the same time, whether they are uh, probably, as, as I would say, they are, you know, kind of all intertwined causally. I don't know that we can really tease apart a kind of clean path where one, you know, simply affects the other, affects the other. I I don't think that they're wholly distinct from one another. To me, they're all kind of jumbled up together as as challenges. And they're just a manifestation of of the complexity of the of the challenge and the reason why we need to a understand that there is no silver bullet solution to, to this problem. B, that it's going to take a long time to solve. This is not the kind of thing that you fix in one election or even uh, electoral cycle. It's going to take many decades to to get this right. And then C, that even as we, and by we, I mean people in civil society or in philanthropy, have our particular focus areas, we need to understand the work that we're doing in a broader context. So folks who are working on local journalism – need to see themselves as part of a broader effort to revive American democracy. You know, likewise with the political reformers who have their, you know, kind of chosen or preferred reforms, we all need to see ourselves as, as part of a, a broader effort here. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. To prep for this interview, I was just taking a quick look at some political polling in the, in the US and, and other countries, seeing how kind of committed people are to, to liberal democratic values. I guess it was it was slightly heartening to see that I guess just the, the great majority of Americans in, in polling say that you know very important to have regular elections, very important to have a largely free press, very important to have uh, religious freedom, very important to have uh, have the rule of law. But I guess there are other trends where you see just like big declines in trust in political institutions or in just like indeed across basically all institutions in society. I think except interestingly the military, you know, the, the media, the courts, you know, Congress, Senate, just just across the board compared to the 50s, people just have much less trust in their, in their competence and their, and, their, and, their, and, their, and their truthfulness. Yeah, li- libraries are the, the one other um, okay. institution aside from the military that, that still has pretty high levels of trust. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that best still work. Um, yeah, what were what, what some of the other trends? Oh, I guess, oh, and, and as you're saying, uh, just big increases in people thinking that members of the other party are bad people. Where that was, that used to be a, a fairly minority view and is now like very mainstream, uh, mainstream view, which is, which is pretty troubling. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a kind of interesting mixed bag. I've seen so many explanations that people have put forward for the, for this trend over the last five years. You know, some people talk about how it's, you know, the internet is radicalizing people perhaps or allowing people to, end up, you know, having unusual ideologies that previously would have been uh, cut out of the mainstream. Uh, some people talk about, you know, it's increases in economic inequality or dissatisfaction with, with the job market and, and, and wages. Some people have a kind of an economic theory. Some people think it's a kind of a cultural backlash to progressivism and immigration and, you know, culture changes, challenges to masculinity and traditional values that you're getting a back, backlash to that. It seems like that we almost have too many explanations and I don't really have a very strong view one way or the other on like which of these kind of underlying trends is then causing this political change. Yeah. Do, do you and uh, maybe your, your colleagues kind of take any position on this or maybe you uh, fairly agnostic on what are the underlying social social drivers? 
Look, I think everyone wants to understand these challenges. And I think those who come to firm conclusions about them at this point are probably jumping the gun a bit. I mean, I just think we don't know. I think it is clear that all of those trends are factors in in one way or another. Part of the challenge of trying to figure this out is really looking at both the domestic and the global context, as as we were referring to earlier, because there are particular things that we see here. So, you know, for instance, when you talk about immigration and the, the kind of cultural backlash there, that is certainly a factor in the United States. And yet you see similar dynamics playing out, say, in a place like Poland, which doesn't really have an immigration challenge. It is a, a very homogenous country. And yet some of the same kind of racist or nativist sentiments are part of the populism that is taking place there. And so I, I just think we, we don't know enough yet to know why these things are happening in the ways that they are, how this various kind of stew of of issues actually is manifesting. What's what are the drivers? What are the symptoms? You know, what are the underlying causes? We we just don't know enough. And I don't know that we need to. I mean, I guess this is where I kind of come out on it. It's not that we we shouldn't aspire to get more clarity about it over time. I do think we should. There's plenty of research going on in that regard. And I think it is very, very, very worthy. But I also think we need to avoid kind of a reductionist impulse to really try to figure out, you know, is it culture or is it economics? I just think those are those are too simplistic. You know, however they kind of come out in in the wash, those bifurcated ways of of understanding the problem are just going to be too simplistic. And so I'm, I'm quite comfortable saying that those are all part of the problem. And I think there are very smart people who would say this one over that one. And there's another person who would say that one over this one. And I, I think that's just, a again, it's a manifestation of the wickedness of, of the challenge. We just don't know. Yeah, one one other big theory I forgot to list there is uh, kind of the, the big sort theory that you're getting a big, uh, people with particular kind of personality and education characteristics are all sorting into the same counties and then all meeting one another. And then uh, people who have a kind of very different personality are all sorted into into rural areas. And that kind of uh, causes polarization because people just don't don't meet in their social circles, people who are who are different. And and, and there's like fewer cross-cutting pressures of, you know, you, you might meet a conservative at church, and but actually, but like them, even though you have different politics, that kind of thing. Yeah, what, what I, I just don't don't really have a strong view here because it seems like the the empirical picture is extremely complicated. You can find both evidence supporting and contradicting, or or, or intention with with all of these theories. And so it does seem like we have to proceed thinking, well, like all of these things could be playing into it, and we're not going to get a, we're not going to get a really clear answer anytime soon. You know, social scientists might figure this out <laughs> sometime down the road, but it's not easy. Given all that, what do you think are the most important levers to push on to try to kind of shore up the political situation in the in the United States? So I would say a, a couple of things here. You know, one, as we talked about, I think political reforms are really important. I mean, I think we have to change some of the incentive structures and see what happens. It was noted that Lisa Murkowski, Republican senator from Alaska, was the first senator on the right to come out in favor of Donald Trump's impeachment after January 6th. Well, that also happened after Alaska had passed a a set of, of voting reforms, including Final Four voting, where there were are no longer going to be partisan primaries. There will be a kind of open primary, and the top four vote getters will move on to the general 
election and there will be ranked choice voting. So you'll you'll get to list your preferences, you know, among the final four candidates. And that is thought to kind of enable more candidates to appeal to a wider segment of the population. So it was noted that with that reform in place, that that may have played a significant role in Murkowski being able to come out as quickly as as she did and as, as forcefully as she did on Donald Trump's impeachment. So political reforms, I think, are key. You know, second is I really do think we need to revitalize local journalism. We have so little accountability right now among elected officials in Washington, D.C. or in state houses. We, we kind of forget sometimes we used to have entire delegations of reporters covering the actions of, of elected representatives. And just with the decimation of local journalism, that has, has gone away. We also just have less connection and knowledge about issues within local communities. I was talking with someone the other day who made the observation that we're much more likely now to know what's happening in somebody else's community than we are in our own, because in somebody else's community, maybe there was something that was just so shocking that happened that it made the national news. And so we're, we're focused in all the wrong places with our own kind of civic energies in that regard. And it's impossible to imagine how we really combat disinformation or get to any kind of shared fact base, which we need in a functioning democracy without a much healthier, much more robust and rebuilt uh, set of, of local journalism institutions, newspapers, you know, online publications, et cetera. And finally, I think in order to overcome toxic polarization, we need to build social cohesion in this country. And I, I don't, when I talk about social cohesion, I don't mean that this is just how can, how can we all just get along better? Um, that's a, an overly simplistic you know, view of, of what I think social cohesion should mean. It's actually how can we disagree while still seeing each other as part of a common project and, and part of a common political community? How do we still see each other as human despite our political differences? And right now we're losing that capability and it's, it's causing a lot of the challenges that, that we're seeing, including an increase in extremism and, and violence. And I think it contributes to the rise of authoritarian populism, right? As I said earlier, kind of tribal loyalties are superseding the commitment to democracy. So this is an area of work that I think needs much more attention from philanthropy and, and from society at large. And it's, it's hard for me to imagine kind of at the civic and cultural level how we can continue to function if, in fact, we are in such warring tribes. And I, I do worry about the warring piece of that continuing to not just be in, in sort of name or uh, name calling only, but, but really in continued acts of political violence. Yeah. Okay, so we had three there. Uh, the first one was, I guess, changing things like voting methods and how people are appointed and kind of what incentives they face as, as politicians. The second one was local journalism. And the third one was building social cohesion and getting people to uh, have some more fond feelings for people who they disagree with on politics. Maybe let's, let's go through those one by one. What, what do you think are some of the most valuable kind of structural changes that we could make to the political system? I guess you mentioned earlier, that there's like lots of smart people who kind of disagree on these, on these questions, but are there any, any options that you feel more positive about than, than others? 
Yeah, so there are reforms uh, in in all kinds of, of different ways in the system that I think are important. You know, one of the most promising one on the voting front, for instance, is automatic voter registration. It's a little bit odd and probably not coincidental in the United States that when a boy or man at least turns 18, you're kind of automatically drafted into the selective service. That happens without you doing anything. And that means, you know, you're, you could be on call for, for military service at some point. But one has to proactively register to vote to avail oneself of that right in our system. And it's actually in part, I, I should note, it's not a constitutional right. There is no right to vote in the U.S. Constitution, which I think is, is also a challenge here. And so automatic voter registration is at least one, I think, quite popular reform, I think has, has demonstrated effectiveness, but is, is popular not just on the left, but, but actually has some adherence across the political spectrum. It basically says, you know, when you go to, uh, to get a driver's license, you know, for instance, you're, you're kind of automatically enrolled to vote. So that's, that's a really, really key reform on, on the voting rights front. You know, I do think expanding the ability to vote by mail is really key. I think we saw a lot of that. I would love on the kind of redistricting front to to see us get rid of, of partisan redistricting. I think the, the incentives there are, are just all wrong. And I think it's clear that we need independent commissions, not that they're easy to, to implement or, or figure out. There's still lots of challenges, but I would like to see us move away from partisan redistricting. When it comes to reforms about how we elect our representatives, that's where I'm, I'm as I was noting earlier, much more agnostic. So, you know, I'll just spend a, a minute on, on three of the key reforms. My friend and colleague at Stanford, Larry Diamond, is, for instance, a real proponent of ranked choice voting. And the idea behind ranked choice voting is that you don't just have to win a pluralistic election by getting the most votes out of all the candidates, but you actually have to win a majority. And the way you win a majority is by counting people's second, third, uh, sometimes fourth place choices and aggregating those votes until you have someone who has earned a majority of, of the votes. And, and the idea there is that that actually is a, a moderating influence on, on the election. It means that when you're, you're running for office, you want to appeal beyond just your kind of partisan base because you want to get people's second, third, and fourth choice votes. A Lee Drutman at New America is, is a real proponent of a multi-party system, you know, where we would actually create some, some changes to the system to sort of, in some ways, break up the coalitions from within the large party structures that they operate and actually give some more ability for, for those components of the coalitions to actually be represented by parties themselves. And then you have uh, another friend and colleague, Catherine Gale, at the Institute for Political Innovation, who has an excellent TED Talk and a book out on what she calls Final Five Voting, which is, uh, I, I referred to this earlier, but it is where you have a, a nonpartisan primary where the top five of vote getters move into the general election, and then you use ranked choice voting to select among them. So those are those are a number of the key reforms that that folks are out there debating. Again, I think it's important to have some humility with these reforms, but I do think that there is a need to to change the way that we're operating at the moment. 
Yeah, we have a um a long episode. I think it's episode thirty three with Aaron Hamlin, where we go through a lot of kind of voting theory and different different voting methods and discuss different possible reforms there and some of the complications, some ways that they can potentially backfire. I think I do think there are promising opportunities for the US to improve its voting system because it's kind of choosing the one that, in theory, is the worst. Uh, just just like two parties and like first past the post uh, and like using primaries, it's it's kind of so problematic that it, that it should be possible to find something that's that's better than that. Although I suppose changing the changing the voting method when you have kind of partisans deciding what the new voting method should be, they could potentially shift it in their favor, right? Uh, once you start opening up these questions, potentially things could get worse because people are deliberately making them worse. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll just say really quickly on that point, I think that speaks to the need for us to actually build commitment across ideological lines to democracy and to reforms to our, our system. I mean, if if this really just remains the, the province of, of the left, then you're only going to see progress on it when the left is in power and in places where the left is in power, and you will see a lot of opposition to it on the right. And certainly that that feels in many ways like what we're experiencing now at both the state and, and federal level. But I think the real promise, the, the real need here is actually to create greater buy-in uh, across lines of, of political division. Yeah. I guess it seems like the the future for uh, you know voting reform in the US is referendums at the kind of city, county, or possibly state level to to change things, or tr- trying to like build up from from lower levels and then get people to test them out, feel confident about them, and then scale them up to to higher levels. I guess I, I don't know of any states that are seriously considering, say, you know, switching to approval voting or something like that uh, for the presidential election or or for you know members of Congress and things like that. But I'm more aware of you know cities that are that are interested in changing their their voting methods. Is that right? Yeah, it's it's true that a lot of the key reforms are happening at the the state and local level. Again, partly that's a manifestation of of the way elections happen in the United States. Even the presidential election is is in many ways a, a state by state election process, and so that's that's certainly true. And there are many states that have the ability for ballot initiatives and referenda to to be on there. And that is how many advocates have gotten reforms passed at both the state and local level. I think there's some challenges to that over time. I mean, I live in California, where we have a very robust ballot measure system in place, and I find it to be a really bad way of of making policy. And, you know, I think there are a number of reforms from the progressive era this is one of them, by the way, getting rid of, of primaries that were controlled by partisan uh, elites and, and putting them into the hands of the public, you know, which at the time seemed like a great idea. I mean, there, there are a number of, of unintended consequences of, of these reforms. And, you know, I think this is this is one of them. Yeah, I guess uh, ballot initiatives are a, are a big bag, but it does seem like well, there's good theoretical reasons to expect them to go off the rails. And we've definitely seen that in some states where ballot initiatives that are just incredibly destructive have been passed, and then it's uh, very, very hard to get rid of them. So yeah, it's, it's one that sounds really good on the tin, and then is a lot more complicated in practice. So I suppose it's exactly why we should be humble about forecasting what effect our reforms will have. That's right. And look, at the end of the day, this is where even as, as someone on the left, I really do appreciate the representative nature of our democracy, we are not all meant to make policy for ourselves. There is expertise that is needed, you know, on on these issues. And so I can't help every time I pull up my, you know, very long ballot guide and read the language and the descriptions and the arguments for and against a measure that I really shouldn't be making these decisions. Um, (laughs) It's just, it's not my job. You know, I should be tasked with 
electing, with choosing the people who I trust to make those decisions on on my behalf. Yeah. yeah I, guess, I guess there's some issues where potentially they, they are appropriate because it doesn't require much technical knowledge, but other areas where it really, really does. <laughs> Doing a ballot initiative is very much the wrong way to do it. Yeah. And look, again, it, it is the mechanism by which a lot of this change is happening right now. And so I want I, I want to both say I think there are challenges with it and, and give it its due. It, it's been a very important vehicle for um, getting reforms passed at the state and local level that, that do you know, ultimately inform efforts to, to implement these things more widely. Yeah, a benefit of ballot initiatives is that you can route around. So obviously, the existing politicians are benefited by the current system because they were elected in it. And ballot initiatives give you a way of reforming the, the system that routes around their own selfish interests to keep things exactly as they are. No question. Let's move on and talk about the the second thing you mentioned, which is kind of rejuvenating local news and I suppose attention to to local politics. Do you think that focusing on local issues maybe reduces partisan rancor because the issues at the local level are famously these issues of like who can pick up the trash, where they don't have these kind of hot button cultural issues which seem to dominate at the national level? Many more people could imagine voting for you know one party or the other just on the basis of the like basic competence of the people. Like, are they going to be able to pick up the trash at a decent price, and are they going to get things done? And so, possibly focusing on those practical bread and butter issues will get people to be willing to to, to work across partisan lines more. Yeah, absolutely. I think our politics, uh, at least here in the United States, are are much less polarized at the local level than they are at the federal level. And so, you know, when we are paying attention to federal politics, we're seeing kind of the worst manifestations of of political polarization. And that is affecting the way that we understand our democracy and understand our, our politics right now. And so the more that we can be focusing at the local level, where there is, as you said, a lot of common concern that that don't, by the way, fall along traditional and traditional in this sense really means kind of national or federal political lines. And that's that's part of what we need to, to overcome the polarization in our country is to crisscross or to, to crosscut, I should say, you know, some of those standard divisions. The other thing is that there's a presumption, which I think is probably true, that one of the challenges that is afflicting American democracy is a lack of, of felt agency. That as people look out at the world, they see, you know, a growing federal government and bureaucracy, and that bureaucracy includes many parts of it that are unelected, right? Because you elect a president, you elect a senator, and you elect your representative. But you don't elect the other members of the executive branch, for instance. And the executive branch is huge. It has lots and lots of employees and, you know, different departments. And so a sort of proliferating number of of decision-making bodies that people literally have no control over. And then you get to an environment in which, you know, we, for good reasons, have to be engaging with other countries to make international policy on things like human rights or climate change. And that is even less, you know, connected to to people's ability to influence things. So then when you think about where can we actually have an impact in our democracy, where can we feel connected to it? It's at the local level. There are just so many more opportunities there to see and touch and feel, to have an impact, to get to know people, to know the issues. And so I think we need more of that. It's, It's actually a weakness, I would say, of progressive politics over the last half century, we've put so much effort and, you know, I I don't want to malign the reasons why this happened, but we've put so much effort 
on national politics, and by the way, also on the judicial system, you know, where again, people don't have an ability to, to kind of control or influence that. We've put so much emphasis there that we've moved people's attention away from the things that they can feel connected to that are really the bread and butter of, of democracy. Yeah, it's an interesting thing about progressives in the United States. I mean, obviously, I'm not American. So I'm like slightly looking at this as an outsider. But I had the impression that liberals in the US are kind of very focused on doing things at the national level, if, if, if at all possible, and quite resistant to the argument that why don't we just decentralize this to a state level or a county level? I, I understand the historical reasons why you know, liberals maybe look at the idea of, you know, to doing things at the state level with quite a, a jaundiced perspective, because it was horribly abused in, in the past. But it seems like that attitude has maybe extended beyond what is really justified by by that history. It's like, I mean, if, if you think it's okay for Australia to run its education system, you know, without like reference to other countries all that much, then why can't Florida kind of do the same thing? Like, and it's true that if you decentralize things, do things at the state level, that means that there'll be some states that will do things that are worse from your perspective, maybe because the people there have different views. But it also means that there'll be other states where people agree with you more, where you'll get more of, of what you want. And maybe it should roughly kind of cancel out, but people will feel like perhaps they have more agency because it's being done at this more local level where they can have more influence. Yeah, and I think there's actually some pretty exciting movement taking place on, on both left and right in terms of how we think about these issues. So it's notable to me, for instance, that a couple of years ago, two folks out of New America produced a report called Progressive Federalism, which was really looking at the question of how we might draw more attention and do more policymaking at the the state and local level, not just at, at the federal level, and where that would offer opportunities actually to advance many progressive ideas. At the same time, you have a book published uh, last year by David French, the conservative columnist, called Divided We Fall, which also makes the case for federalism as possibly the key solution to dealing with the, the divisions in, in our country right now. And so it's, it's really interesting to see people on both the left and right playing with ideas around federalism with a recognition that in a country of 330 million people, we're not going to be able to mitigate all of our political differences at the national level. And we might, we might do well to focus much more of our attention at the state and local level. You know, this also connects to a book that came out, I believe, last year called Politics is for Power, actually by my wife's cousin, uh, the scholar Eitan Hirsch, you know, where he argues that a lot of the ways in which Americans are kind of interacting with politics right now or doing politics are not actually doing politics. We are kind of voyeurs, you know, we're, we're, we're doing things online. We think participating in American democracy and politics is reading the newspaper and getting into a, you know, following the campaigns, you know, the presidential campaign and, you know, and, and engaging in debates and discussion on social media or retweeting things or making statements when he argues, no, that's that's not politics. You know, politics is actually getting together with other people in your community to fight for things that you care about and try to implement them into policy and law. That is politics. And that inherently, again, for most people involves local politics. It involves local issues. So I'd love to see us put much more emphasis there. And to circle back to the point around local journalism, I think local journalism is, is a key complement to that. We, we need the information ecosystem that can inform our, our understanding of what's happening and that can also report back out on it to others. 
Yeah. So I think it seems almost universally believed, or like many, many people believe that it'll be great if we had more local journalism like we used to have before the internet. But the commercial model for that has just been completely obliterated. Yeah. How can we fund anything like the level of of journalism and attention to, to local politics that we used to have? It's a great question. I think that one of the key things that we need to understand is that right now, we need philanthropy to be a major, major revenue driver for journalism. It just is is where we are because the business model, as you said, has collapsed. And I think if we want there to be local journalism right now, by and large, that's going to be have to have to be funded by by philanthropy for some time. And so one thing that I'd love to encourage any donor out there, whether you're giving twenty five dollars or twenty five million dollars, is to give to a local journalism outfit, you know, to an online or or print publication in, in your community regardless of, of how you focus your giving otherwise. I think that's that's a really key thing that we should each be doing in our philanthropy. The other thing is there are a lot of innovations taking place in, in the revenue models for nonprofits. I think it's likely that journalism will continue to happen more and more so through nonprofit entities going forward to enable some amount of, of philanthropy over the long term. But we're seeing all sorts of really interesting, you know, revenue generators taking place, whether that's doing events and bringing in speakers, whether it is, you know, having membership models. You know, there's there's lots of different things that organizations are, are trying right now. There's a really important nonprofit that was started a couple of years ago called the American Journalism Project, which is sort of a, a venture philanthropy partner to local journalism, which is really trying to invest in both some of the best local journalism outfits, but also to help them do that in ways that they can test and, and scale you know, their, their models. So there's a, a lot of promise there, but I think right now, one way or another, philanthropy is, is a really kind of key piece of, of the puzzle for local journalism. Yeah, it's interesting. Journalism is surprisingly cheap to produce. I guess it, it often runs at a loss, but not that large a loss in, in absolute monetary terms. So you can potentially like prop up, you know, a local newspaper perhaps for like surprisingly little money because, you know, it'll get some of its revenue from ads and some of its revenue from sales. And then I guess you can make up the difference with 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 philanthropy. So it's so interesting that journalism is so cheap relative to the size of some other industries that uh, I was looking at the numbers, I can't remember them off the top of my head, but it would cost a pittance for like the tech industry or like people involved in the tech industry to like <laughs> just like double the size of, of the newspaper industry. So small are the budgets in the, in the, in the scheme of all, all business in the, in the United States, which is kind of an interesting situation. I guess you see this with Jeff Bezos buying up the Washington Post for an amount that's absolutely trivial to him, but then the Washington Post has this enormous cultural influence. I mean, that has its own problems, having like very rich people dominate this. But I guess it also has some benefits and maybe is better than an alternative of, of nothing. Yeah. And two, two of the other things we're seeing here, I mean, there is a greater push for public funding of, of local journalism. I, I can't remember actually now whether this bill passed, but I recall that there was legislation in New Jersey for the, the state of New Jersey to, to be creating a, a fund to support journalism in, in the state. I think there will be more emphasis on that going forward. And the other, to, to your point a moment ago, is there are some efforts to, to try to get the big technology companies, particularly the social media platforms, to be contributing some of their revenue to, you know, to, to local journalism, because they are obviously one of the main reasons <laughs> and, you know, for, for which the, you know, the, the newspaper industry is, is suffering. And they also rely on 
the existing journalism industry, you know, obviously as well. So there, there's a there's a, a relationship there that I think you know offers some some incentives that are not just altruistic in in nature. So there there's some efforts to to get that implemented as well. Yeah, like I said, I'm, I'm from Australia, where we have the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, which is, well, like, yeah, the great majority is just publicly funded through taxation. And likewise, uh, well, in, in the UK, you've got the, the BBC, of course, which is, I guess, funded perhaps partly through tax receipts and partly through this interesting subscription thing uh, called the, the television tax, or the, uh, I can't remember what, remember what it's called, but basically every house that has a television has to pay some tithe to the, <laughs> to the BBC each year, which uh, I was quite surprised to learn when I moved here. I guess people are constantly bickering about this in Australia and, and Britain about whether whether they're doing a good job. It basically seems to me like they kind of are doing a basically good job. And, you know, that that kind of fighting back and forth is all just part of the, part of the healthy dialogue that you get in order to keep these things on the, on, on the rails. It seems like there's a lot more resistance to publicly funded journalism in America. And I think because of these perhaps structural problems with the United States, where perhaps it is a like more divided country and people are perhaps more, well, I, I don't know whether it's the case, but you really would worry about politicians after doing things underhandedly where they fund what are in effect propaganda networks that, that support the existing incumbents. And I think that's one reason why you get a lot of resistance to this kind of publicly funded journalism. Do, do you have any views on that? Well, look, I mean, we do also have our own national publicly funded journalism. You know, we have NPR, we have PBS, they are contested in, in some of the, the same ways, in part because, you know, the right, not without some reason, sees them as, as being kind of liberal media. But it is notable that they continue to exist even through the Trump administration, for instance, not as propaganda outfits for the government. They maintained, you know, their, their editorial independence there. I've, I haven't actually even heard about any efforts by the Trump administration to, to change that. Now, the administration did a lot, unfortunately, on our overseas communications, things like Voice of America. That's that's an entirely different situation. But but to your point, I think it's less likely that we're going to see uh, continued or growing national public financing of media. I think what we need to see is is more at the the state and local level, which which again is sort of less politically contested and really the kinds of media that, that we need. We don't need another NPR. We don't need another PBS. We need people to have access to media about their own lives and communities. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to the third thing you suggested, which I guess is reducing partisan hatred. It's a challenging one because I guess, you know, people in it's United States is a very diverse country where people have very different political views. And, you know, there are many people in the United States who to me seem to have values that I really do disagree with. And from my point of view, the things that they're advocating for are, are very harmful. So in a sense, it's like only natural that I would have some antipathy towards people who are, people who are advocating this stuff and vice versa. You know, many people in the United States would think that the things that I advocate for are, are very harmful and, you know, immoral and maybe, maybe I'm just a bad person for doing it. Despite the fact that it's kind of rational on this individual level to have this antipathy towards people who you, whose values or like empirical beliefs you think are, are very bad. It's so destructive on the societal level when everyone indulges in something that's that's perfectly sensible at the individual level. How can we kind of get people to yeah to, that, that to be less hatred without kind of asking people to just close their eyes and pretend that the world isn't isn't the way that it is and that there aren't people who like do deeply disagree with them on what society ought to do? So the key thing in in some ways to me is that I think we need to get out and meet each other. You know, there's this theory called contact theory which basically says that it's very easy for us to make assumptions about people that we don't know because we don't interact with them. 
But when we do actually interact with them, we learn that they almost never stand up to the stereotypes. So this isn't to say that there aren't people who we have deep disagreements with. It's not to say that there aren't bad people in the country. But it is to say that we're actually really, really bad, both on left and right, at least across this this one divide in our society. We're really bad at understanding the views of, of the other side. And this has been demonstrated over and over again. So one thing is we just have to find ways to get out of our bubbles. Now, this is really hard to do right now because, as we've talked about, we are geographically sorting. And so we live with fewer and fewer people who we, we disagree with. But it's, it's, a, it's a key piece. We also have to understand that in a, in a pluralistic democracy, certainly one like the United States that has 330 million people, people are going to have different views. We're not all going to see things the same way. And part of the project here is we have to get comfortable with that. We have to be okay with it. And when we are in a social cohesion building frame in particular, we need to not see our project as trying to convince other people to see things the way that we do. There has to be tolerance for, for different views. That, that is what pluralism is. We have to be able to live together in, in a society, in a political community, recognizing that we have differences, fighting for those differences, by the way. This is not a call for, you know, for, for trying to get along all the time, for consensus. We, we should have deeply held political beliefs, and when we have them, we should fight for them. We also need to recognize at the end of the day that in fighting for them, other people are fighting for their deeply held beliefs. And however wrong we might think they are, we're going to have to accommodate one another in, in one way or another. We, we can't have total defeat in a democracy, certainly not in a pluralistic one. I think we also need, as we were talking about in the, the local political context, we need to get out more and do things together, you know, that, that take us outside of our kind of standard partisan divisions. So there's a, a group I, I, I often like to point to in this instance called the One America Movement, which gets people across lots of different lines of difference in their communities to actually go out and do projects together of, of common interest and concern, volunteering in the community, community service, helping rebuild after a natural disaster. You know, when you take people out of the red-blue kind of partisan divide and actually put them in their communities doing things where they have shared concerns, you cross-cut, again, those, those political identities and, and build new identities. And it's in those, those new identities that we can start to find some way to cohere. We also need, uh, and this is the final point I'll, I'll make here, we also need more in-group moderates. So this is a, kind of a, a term of art, and it doesn't actually refer to political moderates or centrists. What it refers to is people who are willing to stand up against the worst impulses of their own side. It's very easy to criticize the other side of the aisle. It's much harder to criticize your own. But it's actually the key thing to creating communities, political communities that are willing to act with some moderation and some forbearance, you know, for for the other side. And so we need more of those kinds of people. It turns out they're really key to that happening. When you remove them, you see greater and greater extremism and greater extremism makes it easier 
to to do bad things. By the way, in in Rwanda, for instance, you know who were the first people to be killed in the genocide in the mid nineties? It wasn't the Tutsis. It was the the Hutus who were pushing back on Hutu power. They were among the first to be killed because they offered a sort of a, a puncturing of a bubble. And so you often see a move to get rid of in-group moderates. Uh, on, on the positive side, it's because they, they do have a really <laughs> important powerful. role to play. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. I'm a little bit pessimistic about this one happening because it, it does just seem like, you know, meeting people who have very different political views to you and like hanging out with them, talking to them, people find that kind of stressful and like perhaps a bit aversive and a bit unpleasant. And, and there's so little pressure or like personal gain, I think, that people get from that. Unless you're someone who, you know, really enjoys meeting people who have very different views and, and talking about it and like enjoys having a diverse, ideologically diverse friendship group, then kind of, yeah, why would you do that? <laughs> and how are we, we going to get people to do that? You know, some people will be very, uh, you know, animated by this issue of, you know, we have to like bring America together. We have to get people to get along. But I just suspect that the number of people who are so motivated by that, that they're going to go out and <laughs> you meet people who have, you know, who are strong supporters, say, of a, of a politician they really dislike, uh, maybe just isn't enough. So I'm not sure how, how we make this happen at a, at a grand scale. So this is where I go back to thinking about local politics and, and its connection to democracy, because, yes, that's true. If the idea is that we need to get everyone to participate in bridge building activities, you know, uh, across our, our political differences, that is only going to appeal to so many people. And it's really difficult to do at any meaningful scale. But when we start to actually think about it a little bit differently and go back to this idea that what happens in local communities and again, there's a challenge here in that we are so geographically sorted right now. That's one that I don't know how to disentangle. But there are still plenty of places where you have Republicans and Democrats, you know, living side by side or as part of one one political community. And it is it is in those places and it is in those ways that we take people out of the kind of national and standard and really polarized political identities and get them doing things that they have shared interest in. We might not call that bridge building. We might not call that uh, formally building social cohesion, but that's exactly what it is. And by the way, it happens every day all across the country in lots of different communities and lots of different community spaces. That's the kind of thing that I think we need to build on and, and do more of. There's some really interesting thinking going on For instance, a recommendation in a report called Our Common Purpose, which came out of a task force that had been stood up and managed by the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. One of their recommendations in this report, which came out in 2020, was to build a national trust for civic infrastructure, to really try to build out the spaces and the, the leadership models and, and the opportunities for people of various backgrounds to get together in libraries and in parks, in, in community centers to, to you know, build out the ability of, of those types of, of places to actually do cross-cutting programming, to do training for people who you know, can lead those kinds of efforts. So the, the thing that I would say in conclusion on this point is I think there is a lot happening. Part of what's needed to do more of it is actually more money. The social cohesion space, whether one thinks about it formally through bridge building organizations like One America or Braver Angels or groups like that that have some national prominence or thinks about it as being the kind of aggregation of a a number of 
different kinds of projects and organizations, you know, happening at the local level throughout the country, we, we do need more resources put into this. And we're just really at the beginning, and I would say this across a whole host of issues within American democracy, it's what gives me hope that philanthropy and civil society working with other actors can actually make a difference on these issues. We're just very early stage. We, we just haven't been at this for very long. And so we need more money and we need to keep at it for, for some time. But I think there's lots of things that we can look at, you know, as, as sort of good examples to be hopeful about. Yeah. Some people will hate this idea. I've seen, seen pushback on it, but this is a, is a point in favor of having workplaces be uh, like less political spaces or encouraging workplaces where maybe you don't talk about politics because you know that people have views that if they, if they were to talk about them too much, that they would end up fighting and finding it hard to work together. But go back to a norm where you have workplaces where people come, come from all different views, but you just try to get along anyway. That's like very much not, 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 not the trend or the fashion at the moment. And, and I totally understand why that is. There's, there's benefits to having workplaces be political or having people, you know, be able to express their views and stand up for what, what, what they think is right. But it does create some problems that it's like one less cross-cutting environment where you might meet and be friends and work together with someone who has, who has very different views from you. That's exactly right. So, so you know, in a, a company perspective, I mean, I, I run a philanthropic and nonprofit consulting firm that the projects that, that I've mentioned are part of. We think about this a lot in, you know, in, in the makeup of, of our own company, because we don't want to be a values-less company. We do want to have values, and we want those values to be clear so that we understand for ourselves what it is that we're doing here, so that as people are deciding whether to come work for us, they understand, you know, what we're working towards. But we also don't want those values simply to be standard political values, because, we know that there are conservatives, you know, for instance, who share a concern about climate. And we know that there are people on the left who share a concern about free speech. And so we need to have values that are capacious enough, if you will, to, to bring in people from lots of different backgrounds and perspectives. And in fact, certainly we talk about this a lot and think about this in, in you know, in, in civil society, in the nonprofit world and in the corporate world, the value of of racial and ethnic diversity, but we want to see that also apply in terms of gender diversity, in terms of LGBT diversity, in terms of religious diversity. You know, there's all sorts of, of ways and ideological diversity is, is just another one of those things. We want to have a container in which we can fight for and work on the things that we care about and do it in a way that is a welcoming space for people who might think about some of these questions differently than, you know, than I might, for instance. Yeah, over the last couple of years, you know, I've seen uh, quite a lot of companies kind of stake out that they want to, you know, be political and they, that they take an active kind of political stance and that they expect their staff maybe to, to adhere particular to particular political values as well. And that kind of seems fine to me because it's like, you know, if you want to join a, join a company and work there, maybe, maybe you'd enjoy it much more if there was like like-minded people there. But there have been others, I guess, who have tried to stake out that, no, we're, we're going to like try to remain a less political company. We're not going to like have strong political views or, or you know, political stances that a large fraction or a meaningful fraction of the population disagree with. And that's not to say that politics isn't important. Rather, it's to say that, you know, our staff have all kinds of political views, and they are going to pursue that just not at the office, they're going to do it in, in, in the rest of their life. And that kind of seems fine to me as well. You know, there's room for a lot of different kinds of work environments, some that are more political, and some that, that are less that, you know, provide people with a range of choice of the kinds of places that they that they might want to work. I, I would just say, so my observation is that a lot of the companies that are taking political stances are actually doing it at the direction or the behest of their employees. 
there is actually not a lot of, I'm not saying there are none, but, but not a lot of companies that where the leadership is deciding that they want to come out and, you know, and, and take a stance on something or position themselves as a company in a certain way. I, I think it's, it's really driven by employees and I appreciate that on the one hand for, you know, all the reasons that you just articulated. And I think it can be really dangerous for the reasons that you articulated earlier, which is it, it does make everything kind of a, a more politicized space. And for me, I'd be much more comfortable and I'd love to see companies draw lines around democracy than around politics. So I think it's really good and heartening to see you know, Delta, for instance, come out and take a stance against this, you know, this Georgia law that that is, it is now a voter suppression effort, basically. Voter suppression effort. You know, it was good to see companies come out and say after the January 6th attack that they weren't going to support politicians who had voted not to certify the election. I think that's really good. I also think, of course, it's good to see companies taking stances on racial justice issues. I'd like to see them actually do things and not just, you know, make pretty statements in that regard. But by and large, I kind of draw the line there. It isn't a bright and, and clear line. I'll, I'll, I'll be honest about that. It, it can get fuzzy. But I'd love to see more companies taking stances in favor of democracy and opposing, you know, different forms of authoritarianism, which, by the way, I think is also in their own self-interest then I would seeing them, you know, wade into every kind of political issue of the day. You mentioned earlier that you think it's really valuable to have kind of moderates within each side willing to, to criticize their inside. I guess you mentioned a couple of different ways that you think perhaps your you know, political fellow travelers are you know, potentially promoting the wrong ideas or causing harm inadvertently. Are there any others that you'd like to mention that are, that are worth noting? So the only thing that I would say here is that I think prior to 2016, the work that was done in the United States on democracy was very much wrapped up with a progressive ideological agenda. And the organizations that worked on it were kind of understood in one way or another to be sort of on the left. I mean, there's groups like the League of Women Voters, Public Citizen, Common Cause. I mean, at the very least, one would not say that those organizations are, are part of a conservative community. And if you're going to plot them somewhere, you'd even though they're nonpartisan, you'd, you'd kind of see them more on the left. And so there's a way in which I think we had mistakenly wrapped up a democracy agenda too much with a progressive agenda. And this is happening again, by the way, in some respects now. I mean, there are organizations that I really respect, like Indivisible, which is a group pretty squarely on the left, when they pulled their members after 2018 to see what issues they wanted Indivisible to work on, the answer, the number one issue was democracy. You know, we have a little bit of a debate now around the For the People Act. You know, there's a wide coalition. I'm certainly, you know, in this camp that, that sees this bill as really, really important for democracy. And again, we need to be able to, to distinguish, you know, our, our views about democracy from our political views. But there is another camp that says, this is a, a thoroughly democratic bill. It was a, a democratic leadership bill. There was no, you know, no effort to get kind of Republican engagement on it. There aren't really a lot of conservative ideas in there. And so it's actually a partisan effort. And so there's there's still this tension to this day, all of which is to say between creating a democracy agenda 
that lots of people can can buy into and doing the work to get them bought into it and kind of just seeing it as part of a very easy and natural, you know, progressive agenda. I mean, the, the, there's a really strong fit there. This is not an easy thing to do, and it's not a, a perfect suggestion. But I think in in kind of tying those things so closely together, we're making it harder for some voices on the right. And this is the, the challenges to, to democracy vis-a-vis the right, you know, are, are much more the fault of the right. Don't get me wrong. But I, I think we are making it harder to, to bring conservative voices in. And this is one of the, the challenges, you know, that, that just fundamentally I'm trying to work on through things like Patriots and Pragmatists to create a space where conservatives, for instance, can engage with progressives around these kinds of questions. I think that's really key going forward. Yeah, one argument I sometimes see on Twitter is uh, people saying, everyone is so worried about the future of the United States. You know, they, they point to all of these negative trends to, to, to ways in which things could go really badly in the future. But people have always been worried about the United States. And, you know, people have written off the US so many times over its 230 or 40 year, year history. But, you know, it keeps on chugging on. And it's still, you know, one of the world's most successful countries by many measures. Are there any reasons you think maybe we're at risk of perhaps overestimating the, the scale of the problem? Because, you know, we just see all of the all of the ways that things are going wrong, but perhaps we, we don't pay attention to, you know, positive trends as much. Or, you know, may, maybe the United States is in some like fundamental way more more robust than it initially appears. Again, I go back to my earlier comment about the proper level of alarmism. I do think we should be alarmed. I think one of the things that we have learned over the last four years is that, A, a lot of the things that we thought were law in this country are actually normative. They're they're customs. And so when you have leaders who feel no adherence to those norms or customs, there at the moment is nothing preventing them from from violating them. And they're very important for the functioning of our democracy, right? For instance, the the division between the White House and the Department of Justice and how they interact with one another. The president is not supposed to be telling the Department of Justice, you know, what what actions to pursue and, and what not to. And likewise, the Department of Justice is not supposed to be foregoing prosecution because the president wants them to. So that's that's a normative area to which we have to pay some some attention. And so I think that's that's one reason for for, you know, some measure of, of alarm is that so much of what has made the United States a successful democracy is normative. And we've just seen the first presidency in the United States, at least in in my lifetime. One could argue about things that, that Richard Nixon and other presidents have done that just you know, threw many of those norms out, out the window. So that's, that's one reason to be concerned. The second related one is American democracy is, is not an inevitability, which is to say the institutions don't just protect themselves. They need people to stand up and protect them. This was, I thought, one of the more interesting debates of the last four years. You know, and it gets to your question was, well, do we really have to be worried? Do we really need to, to fight for these institutions when they're so much more robust than in other countries that are facing democratic decline. And the answer, I think, very clearly and obviously is we have institutions that are really important for the functioning of democracy, but they don't fight for themselves. You actually have to proactively you know, work to, to sustain them. So that's that's a, a, another reason, I think, that, that we should have, you know, some some measure of. Yeah, not be complacent. And I guess the last thing I'll say here is that I think it's clear 
that the exceptionalism that one might have ascribed to the United States in, in previous eras is not quite accurate. That many of the forces that we have just very obviously witnessed in other countries, you know, whether it is restrictions on, on media or, you know, not having free and fair elections or the rise of sectarian violence. I mean, we're seeing those things in, in the United States now in ways that we just had never imagined would be problems here. And so it's, it's another reason why I really don't think we should be complacent and, and think that we'll get by without fighting for, for democracy. Now, this is the, the thing that gives me hope is we are a really dynamic country. We have a robust civil society. We have a very generous philanthropic sector. We have agency on these issues, and we're just getting started trying to solve them, but that agency has to be leveraged. You know, we actually have to do the work in order to make it happen. One take might be that the fact that the US has, you know, managed to kind of have continuity as a country for so long shows something fundamental about the United States that that has allowed that to happen. Another thing would be, well, there's been a lot of countries over the last 230 years, and, you know, some of them are going to get lucky again and again and again. And it could just be the United States has, you know, repeatedly kind of skated by, almost almost had major problems, but then but then made it through. And that was going to happen to, to a country, but you're going to get regression to the mean and, and, and its luck kind of may, may run out at some point. So you shouldn't be too cocky, I suppose. You know, there's a lot of analogies that people make historically to, you know, to, to other societies, democratic societies of, of some variety that have declined, the Roman Republic, you know, Weimar Germany. I think those historical lessons offer a lot. They, they tell us a lot about kind of deep structural trends. And I think we need to learn from those. The thing that I think gives us some opportunity here is that we can learn from them. And in that sense, I don't think anything's inevitable. We should understand that the, the trends are, are deep and structural. It's not going to be easy. It's, it's not going to happen in, you know, one, two, three, four years. But we actually can learn the lessons from the past and we can respond accordingly. And I think that at least gives us a, a, a fighting chance at, at overcoming, you know, some of what we might otherwise think are kind of inevitable historical processes. Yeah, what what kind of specific lessons do you take away from these historical analogies or these analogies and from other countries in the 20th century that kind of maybe guide your thinking or prioritization? Well, some of them we've talked about already, you know, for instance, when you see the rise of of populist leaders, you actually need to you need to figure out ways to to marginalize them rather than trying to or thinking you're you're co-opting them when in fact they're co-opting you. You know, that's one I think recognizing as a, a society when you are kind of reaching a certain level of, of decadence, when people aren't as concerned with or connected to politics in, in a sense. I mean, here, I don't mean people not paying attention to national politics, but not engaging in, in local politics, that you, you need some course correction there. I think we also have to understand that what the United States is doing is historically unprecedented. I mean, there really aren't any other examples of a country that is trying to build an inclusive multi-ethnic democracy. We've seen multi-ethnic countries that are held together through the use of, of power. I think of, you know, the Sunnis and, and Shias in, in Iraq under Saddam Hussein as, as one example. We've seen kind of unequal or non-inclusive multi-ethnic societies where one ethnicity or race has much more power than another. That's the way the United States has been, right? We've, we've been a kind of non-inclusive 
and and certainly unequal multi-ethnic democracy for some time. But we're now moving into this period where there is going to be shared power across racial and ethnic lines. And that is just, it's an incredible promise. It's, it's one of the things that I think is most exciting about America and about American democracy. And it offers all sorts of challenges that are deeply ingrained in, in human societies. And so I think that is a, another thing that we need to understand is there are there are the lessons from history and then there's also the disjunctures. Um, and unfortunately, there aren't a whole lot of great examples of countries doing anything along the lines of what we're talking about here. There are some very kind of small examples, for instance, where a, a majority ethnicity, you know, gave up power to, to uh, you know, another ethnicity or, or other groups in, in aggregate, but there's not a lot of great historical analogies there. And so I think understanding this as, as also kind of novel and new and grappling with the realities of, of that transformation is also really key. So let's push on from this discussion of what people can do in general to thinking about what listeners might specifically be able to do in light of all of this. If I were a listener and kind of I had a million dollars that I was hoping to give away in order to improve American democracy and um, preserve America's future, perhaps like to, to ensure that you say concretely that the US has a fair election in, say, uh, 2032, what sort of things would you suggest that I fund? So I'd, I'd mostly look at the state level. I think, again, there's, there's so much attention, as we've been talking about, in national politics, and that includes within philanthropy. You can get a lot more done at the state level. I mean, if there were one thing that I would probably put resources towards right now, it's something I alluded to earlier, which is building support among Republicans for voting rights and, and kind of other democracy-related reforms. I just think that that is, unfortunately, the main division that, that we have right now that's, that's harming democracy. And I think there are ways, actually, to bring Republicans into the fold, and it's, it's really a necessity to do. There are groups, for instance, uh, one at the state level called the Voting Rights Lab, which is really doing that. They've been working the last few years to build Republican support. That played out in some helpful ways last year and is also helping in some key respects in, in the current battles that are going on. You know, there are also, as we talked about, other opportunities at the state level, for instance, through ballot measures. So putting money into a ballot measure campaign to expand, you know, certain voting rights or to implement some of the kinds of reforms that we've been talking about, as well as things like public financing of election. There are a whole host of, of reforms that one can do through ballot measure processes. And uh, that's a great place to, to spend money. I, I would also have, again, some humility that even with a million dollars, there's only so much that you can do, you know, to have an impact on on these issues. Yeah, yeah. Are there any other kind of specific groups that I guess you're, that you're currently recommending to people who you give advice to that you could name, name here that people could potentially look into? Sure. I mean, there, look, there's lots of great organizations that are working on a whole host of, of issues here. You know, one other that I'll raise right now is a group called Protect Democracy, which was created in the aftermath of Donald Trump's election with a realization that there are a set of, of challenges to a liberal democracy that we are going to be facing in this country. And we want to try to prevent it from becoming a more authoritarian or autocratic form of government. So it was started by a number of lawyers from the Obama administration has since grown to be a truly cross-ideological 
organization. What I think is so powerful about what they're doing is both that they have been defending democracy in a set of ways using the law in particular that just wasn't part of the agenda prior to 2016. So we we have always had organizations focused on ethics and transparency, but we'd never had organizations that were thinking about how an aspiring authoritarian could actually subvert American democracy in all sorts of subtle ways within the executive branch and, and outward. Protect Democracy is expert at that. They've done a lot of work to really you know, stop some of the, the worst abuses or potential abuses uh, during the last few years. But they also recognize that this is a longer-term challenge. And so all the kinds of issues that we've been talking about in terms of reform and in terms of how we sustain American democracy over the long term are, are the kinds of things that, that they have been and, and will be working on. And over the last four years, they had major impact uh, you know, through their, their litigation, through getting sign-on on letters to put pressure on the Department of Justice, for instance, when the attorney general would step out of line on, on something. So they're, they're a great organization that, that I would certainly point to. There's a group called the Campaign Legal Center, which was founded by Trevor Potter, a former McCain staffer and a commissioner at the, the FEC, the Federal uh, Elections Commission. I think he might have even been the, the chair. Yeah, no, I think it, I recognize that name. He's did a fantastic series of interviews and clips on the on the Colbert Report. Very, I, I watched them again recently, right. looking back at 2010, 2011. I'll, I'll put up links to those if people want to entertain themselves. But sorry, go on. Absolutely. You know, Campaign Legal Center does a, a lot of legal work and advocacy for voting rights and, and other reforms to, to democracy. And I think they're, they're just a, a really critical player. Those are two organizations alongside the Voting Rights Lab, which I mentioned earlier, which I think is one of the key organizations at, at the local level. There are a number of national organizations as well that are D.C.-based that work on a host of of voting rights and and racial justice work, groups like the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. These are really critical institutions. In the kind of social cohesion space, I'm a big fan of uh, the One America movement, which I mentioned earlier, which really brings people together in their communities to cross-cut the standard political identities and actually do common projects that can create new attachments to, to one another and new identities. And then a group called Over Zero, which was started by a woman named Rachel Brown, who had done a lot of work overseas on elections and, and political violence and started to see a lot of the same concerns in the United States over the last few years the same kind of warning lights that she had seen flash in other countries prior to, to episodes of violence, you know, starting to flash red here. And so she's been doing a lot of work to really help bring attention to political violence issues. Their particular focus is on the kind of communications front. And so she's been been helping philanthropy and civil society organizations to, to understand these issues, to figure out how to message around them. They've actually got a great partnership in place with One America. And then finally, I'll I'll reference a group called More in Common, which is actually UK-based, although they have work here in the US and and do work in in a number of other countries, including France. Their first report in the US was a a piece that came out in 2018 called Hidden Tribes, which was really given a, a quite different look at the sort of political landscape and how people fall in terms of their political beliefs. 
And it's it's really informed. I mean, as we were talking earlier about the political landscape here, it's it's really informed our thinking about what they refer to as the exhausted majority, which is to say that there are many, many people in this country and they have different political leanings and they're they're not a monolithic block. But the the majority of people in this country don't fall into the kind of progressive activists or traditional conservative camps. There's a couple of other identities that they talk about on the extremes, but but you know they they really aren't engaged political actors. What they are is tired of seeing the kind of bickering that they witness day in and, and day out, and the lack of progress on on a variety of of issues. And so that that understanding has been really helpful for those of us who who work in democracy. To, to think differently about the American public, which, you know, it, it can be very easy to get sucked into thinking, for instance, that Twitter is is real life or that, you know, what many of us experience in, in our, you know, blue bubbles is is real life when the reality is much more complicated than that. So that's another great organization that I draw people's attention to. Yeah, that's an amazing answer. Often I ask people, you know, who should you donate to when they equivocate donating answers, but uh, you've just like rattled off a whole bunch of organizations that we can link to there. Well, I should, I should, you know, say there are many other excellent organizations out there. These are just some that, that come to mind and provide, I think, a representative sample of the kinds of organizations that work across an array of issues in the space. And I've, I've referenced others during this conversation, American Journalism Project, for instance, that I think are great as well. How do you go about kind of shortlisting those projects? Is there maybe, you know, a, a research process that perhaps the network goes through where you like, say, look at the caliber of the people who are leading it, maybe like what results they might be able to claim from the past or like whether their strategy makes sense? Obviously, there's probably a whole bunch of other organizations, some of which maybe you've looked into and have decided not to go out and actively recommend. So we as a network don't make funding recommendations to, to our members in the sense that we're not saying this is the list of, of the best organizations you should go fund it. But we do try to identify projects and efforts and organizations that we think are really exceptional and where we feel comfortable saying to a donor, if you give money to this organization, you can feel good about it. You can feel like your money is going to be well spent and that it will have an impact. The way that we do that is largely through the development of personal relationships with organizations, as well as kind of what I would describe as a, a network of trust, which is to say, when I talk to people, for instance, to come back to protect democracy, when I started to engage with them and I've you know, helped facilitate some of my clients and you know, others through the Democracy Funders Network and otherwise to give to protect democracy and other organizations. But when I first engaged with them, part of what started happening is not only did I appreciate their strategy and their leadership, and did I find it interesting, but I started to hear from people I trust about the organization. And so it becomes very easy when you have these sort of circles of trust, these networks of trust, to be able to rely on kind of a, a collective chorus to validate sometimes your own judgments. Now, you know, I have to be careful that we're not all, you know, falling into, into groupthink here. And so we, we want to always, as we're looking at organizations, we want to press them appropriately to make sure we understand what they're doing, why they're doing it, what reason they think that they'll be successful. And, you know, even when we trust an organization, we may not always agree, but that's okay. 
you know, we we uh, we feel like sometimes we're going to have different views than, you know, than the organizations. But at the end of the day, we need to place our, our trust in them. They're the ones doing the work. When we start to get more conflicting signals, then it gets a little hard. You know, sometimes someone I trust will say this is a great group and someone else, you know, might have more issues with it. So that gets a bit more difficult. But, you know, but otherwise, I, I find that the large majority of organizations, there's actually a lot of agreement on who's doing good work. And, you know, the other thing I guess I would say is there are some realms of this work where one can evaluate and one can look at short-term performance. For instance, there are a number of evaluations underway for organizations who did voter registration and voter turnout work in 2020, that really lends itself to that kind of evaluation and tracking. You can see, you know, who you reached out to, who you touched through your campaigns, and you can see who then actually voted. It's there's there's a voter file and the data is there. There are a number of areas that we've been talking about that are just not susceptible to that kind of evaluation. And so I tend not to put as much emphasis on metrics or short-term impact in areas where I don't think those are quite meaningful. And instead, what I'm looking for is some version of progress, some, you know, progress in, in that sense, in, in a, a kind of direction of, of travel. You know, you want to have some sense that there's momentum building, that the organization has a strategy and is pursuing it, and it's, it's having some even if, if they're just kind of outputs and not outcomes yet, you know, that, that they're at least kind of moving or starting to move in the right direction. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, uh, in what cases do you have the luxury of being able to just look at, you know, what a group has accomplished and you have a reasonably good 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 measure of that? It sounds like things to do with voting specifically is where that happens, but maybe in as much as you're trying to bolster local journalism or... Uh, Increased cross-party friendships is a little bit harder to measure. Though I suppose you could, you know, you could try to measure, you know, friendships per dollar or something like that. Uh, yeah, I mean, you can certainly do it with local journalism. I think you know you can you can track the existence of journalism in communities. <laughs> you can track the number of publications, the number of reporters who are being hired, the number of stories. I mean, there are things there that that you can certainly track. But you know, in the journalism context, tracking revenue is also really key because, of course, that's the entire problem. That's the reason that they have, have gone away to such a great extent. So yeah, I think there are a number of areas that, you know, do lend themselves to, to that kind of uh, measurement. Which are the hardest projects to, to evaluate or to assess? The hardest projects to evaluate or assess, one category of them is really around advocacy and policy. You know, on the one hand, you'll often see organizations take credit for policy wins and, and, you know, those that work on them should. But policymaking is also very idiosyncratic. You can have the best strategy on an issue and make no progress on it for a long time because there just isn't a window of opportunity for action or reform. And sometimes that window of opportunity comes up without much warning and you need to be ready for it. And when you're ready for it, and if you have good strategy and the right political relationships, then you can quite often actually be successful. But but policy is so idiosyncratic that it's one thing to take credit for bills that have passed or policies that have been implemented. But I certainly wouldn't, you know, take anything away from an organization that had been doing that same work, but hadn't had success, 
just because the the window was not ripe for for something to get done. So so policy is a, a big one. I do think, as you were noting, figuring out social cohesion as as an area is is really going to be difficult when it comes to to actually measuring impact. I think it's going to be a while before we have the most meaningful measurements in place. And I don't know that they're going to happen within organizations. They might happen across communities. They might happen, you know, through kind of broader academic studies. I'm not sure yet, you know, what's what's going to be most meaningful there. But I, I can say I don't know that the number of people who came to a workshop that one organization did is a particularly meaningful Metric. I mean, good. Good to know in terms of the the scale of what an organization is doing now, but not entirely reliant or or important in terms of kind of the the broader change there. Those are those are two areas. I mean, I do think across an array of things related to civic education or combating disinformation, there are some pieces of of that work that will be measurable, and some pieces that won't, at least not easily and in short order. You mentioned earlier efforts to build support among Republicans and I guess Trump supporters for voting rights and democracy in general. What was kind of the the pitch that these cross-partisan or, you know, Republican efforts make in order, you know, if I was being told all the time that these elections are a sham, my vote wasn't counted, it's all it's all fake, then it might be quite hard to convince me to uh, trust the system and and support voting rights. So I'm interested to know what what message they're trying to adopt. So I think I would distinguish two things here. When it comes to voting rights at the moment, I actually think the project of convincing Republicans is less about the public or the Republican voting base and more about a set of Republican elites. So, for instance, state legislators, which is where a group like the Voting Rights Lab has had a lot of impact, or to think about, we can think about election administrators or local election officials. One of the really interesting things last year was that Republican elected election officials did not have any of the same qualms as, as, as national Republicans or even some of the state-level Republicans. They kind of understood what they were doing. They knew that many of the reforms that had been implemented were good. They didn't buy into the kind of Trumpian hype about the election being stolen. So it's really at the elite level right now, so to speak, where I think we need to create more attachment. And some of that is, look, because a lot of these issues have been housed in one way or another on the left, there, there just hasn't been a lot of attempt to try to get Republican legislators, for instance, certainly not at the state level, to care about these things. And it's almost an inevitability just based on the way our politics are arrayed right now that if you don't engage with, with them, you're not going to find the way in. There's also a lot of message testing that's happening right now to figure out how do we talk about these things in ways that don't turn off conservatives or Republicans. And this now is both at the elite level, but also among the public. One of the things that we learned last year through some of this message testing was, for instance, that when we talked about mail-in voting, that was a real trigger for folks on the right, as opposed to just talking about absentee Deep voting. Ballot, yeah. <laughs> absentee voting was very popular. They understood it. It was a thing we'd been doing for a long time. And there are some you know, subtle distinctions that one can draw between absentee 
voting and, and mail-in voting. But the point there is that the language was actually a barrier. And so understanding how to talk about it in, in the right way was key. One of the other efforts last year that was really important and that we're going to need to resuscitate is the data on mail-in voting or absentee voting was pretty unequivocal in that it doesn't help one party over the other. And, and we can see this in a sense last year, you know, the turnout among Democratic voters was tremendous. It was enormous, but so was turnout among Republican voters. And so I think it's clear that whatever the kind of marginal difference was in, in that election between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, at the end of the day, these reforms didn't uniquely help the left. And, and that's, that's been the case. So, you know, helping sort of puncture this, this idea that voting rights or an expansion of, of the voting population is inevitably going to help the left. I think that's, that's another way to bring the right into the conversation. When it comes to democracy more broadly, so when we're not just talking about voting rights, that's where I really do think we need efforts that are talking to conservative voters and Republican voters. And you have some non-C3 efforts like in the 2020 election, Republican voters against Trump. There's an effort now, the Republican Accountability Project, that are really trying to hold the Republican Party's feet to the fire around democracy. And I think that's really key because we do need to have conservatives. And I think we do. I mean, this is this is where I would argue, actually, that the conservative base is actually much better on these issues than, than one would think looking at the, the elites, meaning I do think there is more attachment there, but it's not enough. I mean, it may be enough to do a lot, not just politically, but in terms of, of saving democracy, but there's still too many people on the right who are abandoning their, their attachment to democratic norms and institutions. Yeah. If I were a big donor focused on this problem, one strategy that I might consider adopting is just kind of holding on to my money and then, you know, waiting or looking around for politicians who are trying to get elected to office who just seem, you know, especially despicable or especially disinterested in democratic values and perhaps especially likely to support anti-democratic measures that, that might, you know, really roll back voting rights in a, in a very meaningful way or, or liberal legal protections. And then just throwing my money at trying to make sure that they don't get elected because once they're elected, they've got like a huge ability to promote their message. They've got all of this power that they can potentially use to undermine democracy. What do you think of that kind of approach of just literally trying to support any, anyone who's opposed to these worst candidates in the primaries or, or general elections to try to edge them out? Yeah. So, I mean, taking off the, the hats that I wear through Patriots and Pragmatists or Democracy Funders Network, and just as you know, someone who does separately advise donors on their political investments, I would say absolutely one should spend money to elect candidates who support democracy and spend money to oppose those who don't. At the same time, we need to recognize the limitations of such a strategy. Limitation number one, political primaries, partisan primaries. So you have to be able to get such a candidate defeated in, a, in an environment in which they're often rewarded for their extremism, you know, which leads us to problem number two, which is both partisan gerrymandering and demographic sorting. I think it's something like 80% of House districts in the United States are not competitive, which means once you win the primary, 
whether you're on the left or right, depending on the district, your chances of winning the general are essentially above 98%. I mean, they're, they're very, very high. And so it's really in the primaries where you have to get, you know, most times where you'd have to defeat such a candidate. And there are a number of reasons and a number of, of places in which that's really difficult to do. And the last piece here is we should also have some humility about how much money can do in certain environments. So I look, especially when I think about the 2020 election, I think a lot about Lindsey Graham's Senate race. And I think a lot about Mitch McConnell's Senate race. You know, those are two Republican politicians who everything else aside, you know, did a lot, I would say, to harm American democracy over the last few years. They were certainly targets, you know, for for Democratic strategists who wanted to defeat them. I think there was probably more of a sense in the community that Graham was beatable than McConnell. So when you talk to really sophisticated folks, there weren't a a whole lot of them who were trying to defeat McConnell because I think they saw that as largely hopeless. But that didn't stop some insane amount of money that I'm I'm not even thinking. I can't remember the exact (laughs) amount. I mean, I think maybe somewhere around $50 million being spent on Amy McGrath, who was his challenger, who lost by double digits. You know, likewise, Jamie Harrison, who ran ran against Lindsey Graham, just raised an astonishing amount of money and also went on to lose by double digits. So we just have to have some humility that South Carolina is South Carolina, Kentucky is Kentucky, and money only goes so far, not just in those places, but at the end of the day, you know, money, despite the kind of current populist moment, can have a lot of influence, but not necessarily always decisive influence. Let's talk a bit more about how your projects work exactly. So the Democracy Funders Network, was that started up in 2015 or 16? And and I guess, how, how does it work internally in trying to make a difference? So the Democracy Funders Network actually grew out of Patriots and Pragmatists, which preceded it in early 2017. And Patriots and Pragmatists, as I described earlier, was this effort to bring together people from a variety of political and disciplinary backgrounds to do some collective sense-making about what's happening in American democracy and what to do about it. And the core insight there was that because of the polarization in our politics, that had really accelerated over the Obama years. There just were not a lot of places where people from different political backgrounds were getting together to talk. And that's actually a really key thing for saving democracy for some of the reasons that I alluded to earlier. And so creating that space was was really important. You know, one thing I'll say that differentiates patriots and pragmatists from some of the things that did exist is that we are not just a group for moderates. I mean, there certainly are moderates and centrists uh, within the the network, but it's also a group that has true conservatives and true progressives and liberals. And that's part of the value proposition is that one should be able to be a real partisan for your side and still believe in American democracy and still be willing to work with people who are your political adversaries because they're not your enemies. We, We are actually part of a common project. So part of what happened after we created Patriots and Pragmatists, as you know, I, I describe it as a cross-disciplinary space, and I should clarify that that means that there are people in philanthropy, there are funders and philanthropic professionals, there are civic leaders, there are scholars and opinion influencers, there are strategists and advocates and political operatives all within this network. 
And what happened was in creating this space, which was very hopeful and intellectually engaging and eye-opening and, and gave a lot of us a sense of agency on these issues, was that more and more donors, as they, over the course of the Trump presidency, came to realize that the institutions don't fight for themselves, that the issues that we had, have been, you know, as a society working on in other countries were actually problems here. They went to look for the spaces to engage with other funders, to engage with organizational leaders, to learn more about these issues. And there really weren't very many. And because Patriots and Pragmatists is, is really this cross-disciplinary space, we knew that there needed to be a funder network that could really do the work that philanthropy needs to engage on these issues, which is to say, you know, sometimes funders need to have conversations that really get into the weeds about an organization. I mean, some of the questions you were asking me about earlier, which is not appropriate, you know, for, for a cross-disciplinary group to do, you know, sometimes we have to be able to kick organizations out of the room to, to have those kinds of conversations. We need to do relationship building specifically across funders. I mean, even within the Democracy Funders Network, Democracy Funders Network is, is a cross-ideological group, and people are coming at it from a variety of different focus areas. So you have the journalism funders and the social cohesion funders and the political reform funders, and we're trying to knit together a community in philanthropy that all together is trying to repair the fabric, revitalize, reimagine, protect, defend, I mean, do all of the all of the positive things to American democracy to sustain it over the long term. Yeah. So so it's kind of the model that all of the different participants go away and do their own research to try to figure out how they're going to allocate their funds best and then share the information with everyone else and then like come together to to discuss to to figure out what the what the best funding options are. Yeah, something along those lines. So there are some funder network models where the network itself kind of creates a set of organizations and says, these are the best ones. This is what everyone should be funding. We really focus much more on the learning aspect of, of what we're doing, which is to say, because we think that the set of issues that we're facing is so new, in a sense, in the United States, and because our grappling with them as a community is, is so new, that not to say that people shouldn't be funding, not to say that we don't help funders, you know, with their philanthropic strategies, we do, I'll come back to that. But we also think we need to be spending time understanding the problem or the problems. And so we do a lot of programming for funders across issues like the information environment, so disinformation and a local journalism across authoritarian populism and how to combat it across toxic polarization and social cohesion around building a greater civic culture and, and expanding civic ed education around reform. What we're doing is being a resource. So we're in constant conversation with the groups in the space. We field questions from funders. When we see a common set of interests or questions coming up, we'll do some focused research and sometimes tool development and resource development for funders. So for instance, the number one topic that donors have been asking me about since the election is disinformation. And we have been doing uh, what we are calling a rapid issue brief for funders on, on this topic. So kind of a, a quick and dirty research report over the last few weeks, where we're really going to be trying to help funders understand what's going on in the space, how they can choose to orient themselves 
on these issues and some of the groups that, that they might fund. And we're trying to knit together a community, and we do this both through events, sometimes in person, uh, currently virtual, as well as just creating connections among funders so that they can be sharing information with one another about the organizations they support, but also about their theories of change, their strategies, the ways that they think about these issues and the values that they bring to the table on them. Are there any projects that the uh, DFN ended up funding that you think were especially successful and, and it would be interesting to talk about? Well, I won't, I won't say the DFN uh, itself, you know, or as a pass-through funded anything, but, but I mean, two areas that are related that I'll, I'll touch on from 2020 that added up to both the civic miracle that I talked about earlier of, of the 2020 election itself, and also that prepared us for the aftermath of that election. So number one, when the pandemic descended on us in March, there was a mad scramble in philanthropy and in civil society, as there was in other fields, to figure out what this was going to mean for the election and how to prevent the pandemic from, you know, either leading to the election needing to be postponed or driving down turnout. And so there was a big effort, and this really was led outside of the Democracy Funders Network. There was a, an initiative called the Partnership for Safe Voting that really drove a kind of aligned agenda within philanthropy to protect the elections, to expand temporary voting rights so that you know more people could vote by mail, so that there were safe options for voting, et cetera. And, and Democracy Funders Network did a lot to help funders understand the key organizations that were working in that space and, and drive resources to them. And, you know, we are thrilled at the outcome. There are some downsides there, I'll, I'll say, before I come to the second part, which is that philanthropy wound up having to play a role in election administration itself for the first time in history. And this was a function of greater need by all of the local election bodies just to be clear, you're saying kind of philanthropists were funding the operation of the election, like you know, the, the, the existence of polling places and things, which I, I, I saw that and I couldn't believe it. I mean, I'm glad that it happened rather than nothing, but it's crazy that this isn't funded through tax revenue in my mind. Yeah. So there was a, there was a $400 million allocation that was in the CARES Act, which was the first major COVID relief bill to pass last year. The House then had another... I think it was $1.6 in the HEROES Act, which was the second COVID relief bill that actually never made it to the Senate. And so because that money, which together with the $400 million, it would have equated to um, in close to the number that, that experts thought would be needed for election administration, because that money wasn't there, we really had to turn to private philanthropy in ways that I, to your point, hope we don't have to do again. I think it's not a, it was, it was on the one hand, a great thing to see philanthropy step up to ensure that, that we could run elections smoothly, that, you know, new equipment could be purchased, that poll workers could be paid and recruited and paid, et cetera. But it's not a, it's not a great thing for our democracy. The second area that I feel good about where DFN did a lot in terms of driving funder attention was around potential post-election crises. We were thinking about all, all manner of, of crises that could have happened, 
including things on election day, if there had been violence, if there had been extreme examples of, of voter intimidation or suppression, if we'd seen kind of widespread, you know, foreign interference to natural disasters. You know, what happens if there's a, a snowstorm in Philadelphia and Philadelphia has to close down a bunch of its polling places for a while? There were just a lot of, of potential crises and then all the way over to the kind of crisis that we we did, in fact, face with the president refusing, you know, for some time to, to concede the election. And then even even when he left office, you know, saying that, that it was it was a fraudulent election, there was a lot of really careful planning that went into that. There's been some writing on it. For instance, there was a, a actually kind of not great Time magazine piece by Molly Ball on this a few weeks ago that talked about it in really conspiratorial terms, which I find ironic considering the entire point <laughs> was to prevent conspiracies from overturning the election. And it, it was it was a cross ideological effort in ways that I find really heartening. It wasn't just the left getting together and saying, you know, we want to make sure that our guy actually gets into office. It was actors from across the political spectrum saying, Regardless of who wins the election, the important thing here is to ensure that it's free and fair and that the person who is duly elected becomes inaugurated on January 20th. That, I thought, was a really key effort. There were lots of parts of it that weren't needed at the at the end of the day. There had been plans for mobilization if, you know, if, if Trump had really tried to overturn the election or had brought law enforcement, you know, into the mix, but that wasn't necessary. And so instead, we were able to celebrate the election and also hold firm at the various kind of checkpoints along the way, where, you know, a really determined actor could have gone further than than Trump did to, to try to overturn things. So I feel really good about that set of work. Are there any projects that people in the, in the DFN say, you know, I, I wish that someone was going away and doing X, because then I would be really keen to, to fund Project X. I'm thinking maybe something that, you know, perhaps a kind of social entrepreneur or some, someone who's a, you know, has a strong drive in the audience possibly might be able to start a project and then, and then get, get funding from people who are involved in DFN. It's a great question. I wouldn't say that there are a lot of obvious gaps in this space. And I, I want to be clear about this because I think on the one hand, I really think the need for political and civic entrepreneurship is great. It is powerful when people start organizations that are, you know, filling gaps or pursuing visions that they have in, in the country. I mean, I think that's a real strength of American democracy. The ironic thing about the last four years is that it has been one of the most kind of active periods of, of civic entrepreneurship in, in the country's history. And I think that's that's wholly a good thing. On the other hand, there are a lot of organizations and the inevitable thing that happens after a period of entrepreneurship is a period of consolidation. I was around in the 2003 to 2005 and, and six era when a lot of new organizations were started, particularly on the left, some in response to the reelection of George W. Bush. and those organizations, many of them still exist, and many of them wound up closing or merging. And that's kind of just an inevitable process. So I would hesitate a little bit to say there's a lot of gaps and people should should go after them. 
what I would say is the area where I think there's the least clarity about what to do really is around mis and disinformation, uh, and in particular disinformation. I mean, the, the, the one thing that I have always, I mean, for over a decade now, heard people talk about, and there are some folks who have been working on it and some folks coming at this with, with new lenses, I'm sure, is what to do about Fox News. And now one might bucket in Newsmax and, and OAN into that as well, which is to say these broadcast platforms that are highly partisan, but that have huge audiences and huge audience loyalty within them, they're a real problem in terms of, of warping the public's perception, you know, or a portion of the public's perception about, about American democracy. Likewise, when we think about disinformation and we think about it in the context of, of social media, you know, what to do, not just about how to track disinformation, but how to slow it down and how to not have it ingrain itself into people's brains and in the ways that say the QAnon conspiracy theory seems to be doing. And that's maybe of of all of the areas of, of opportunity right now. I think figuring out how to not let half of, of our population, you know, fall under the sway of completely ungrounded conspiracy theories, I, I think would would be a huge advancement and there's not a lot of clarity on how to do that right now. Yeah, yeah. I know you got to run away in uh, in just a second. One last thing I wanted to ask about is patriots and pragmatists as you said is was kind of this rainbow coalition of people who had very different views, sometimes strongly conflicting views and it wasn't something where people were going to be wishy-washy and pretend that they didn't disagree. How did that experience go in in general trying to get people who had very different views to to cooperate and collaborate and hopefully maybe even be friends? And maybe were there any times when it was difficult for you, like it was potentially confronting to work with someone who you actually like fundamentally, you know, disagree with on many things? Uh, never, in part because the people that I've met on the right, we've talked about the writer David French, for instance, who probably can't think of too many people that I know who have more political disagreements with. But David is an extraordinary person and an extraordinarily thoughtful person and is extraordinarily thoughtful about questions of American democracy. And so we've, we've both found lots to discuss. We've found lots to, to debate. But we also just know that whatever we're doing in conversation with one another, it's in good faith and it's, it's among good people. And so there are a lot of people on both sides of the aisle who, you know, we might instinctively think for one reason or another are not great people who really are. And I think when you get to know when you get to know folks on, on a personal level, it does make it make it easier. So I have not had any problems in that regard. In fact, I would say it's been really eye opening and refreshing. I think this is true both for people on the left and on the right, in part because it can be really stifling to to be within a political community where everyone thinks the same as you and is focused on the same things. And so just to hear the way that other people talk about a set of issues or to push back on you can be really intellectually engaging and really fulfilling. And I think that's been part of it. For the conservatives in Patriots and Pragmatists, you know, these are folks who are clearly being dislocated from the Republican Party right now, because unlike many of their compatriots in the party, they do care about democracy. They are concerned with what's going on. They don't think the election was stolen. They don't think we should be rolling back people's voting rights. They do think racism is a problem in American society. 
And so they're in this very kind of odd moment where their sort of tribal loyalties are, are shifting that affects their personal relationships, their professional standing. And I think to be in a welcoming community of people who, you know, understand to some extent that that political dislocation, I think, has been really empowering for them. And the last thing I'll say here is, I think the reason this works is because we are in a political transformation in our country right now. We're in a transformation that I don't think any of us have any real clarity on how it's going to shake out. And this is not just about democracy, but it is about our political alignments. It is about how we think about these issues. Again, my agenda is not to get Republicans to think more like Democrats or Democrats to think more like Republicans. And by and large, I think that people have stayed true to their deeply held political beliefs. But we also do see some ideological dislocations taking place. You know, conservatives, you know, in some cases coming to feel, for instance, that race really is a bigger issue in the United States than, than they realize. Or on the left, you know, us coming to realize that the kind of aggregation of, of, of executive authority within the president, you know, can have some benefits when you're the party in power, but some really bad things for the system when you're out of power. And therefore, we need to we need to take the balance of, of power between Congress and the presidency and the aggrandizement of political power within the executive branch much more seriously. I think those are just kind of early manifestations of of a transformation that is underway that we just we're not going to understand for a number of decades, and here's where my background in history comes in, <laughs> is, you know, we, we need to think a bit historically in that sense to understand that we're living through history and also that we're not really going to understand what that looks like or how it's likely to play out for a number of decades. My guest today has been Mike Berkowitz. Thanks for coming on the 80,000 Hours podcast, Mike. Thanks for having me. In case you missed it, uh, we just launched a new podcast feed uh, that might be useful to you uh, and perhaps some people that you know. It is called Effective Altruism and Introduction, uh, and it's a carefully chosen selection of 10 episodes of this show uh, with various new intros and outros to guide folks through them. Uh, basically, the problem is that as the number of episodes of this show has grown, uh, it has become less and less practical uh, to ask new subscribers to go back and listen through most or even much of our archives. Uh, we've got over 200 hours now, and that number is uh, only going up. So naturally, uh, new subscribers want to know, uh, what episodes should I listen to first? Uh, which ones are going to help me make the most sense of effective altruist thinking uh, or otherwise uh, get the most out of the, the show as it is today? We hope that effective altruism and introduction uh, is going to be able to fill that gap. Um, if you joined us in the last year or two and haven't had a chance to go through our older episodes, it might just be uh, something that you didn't know you were looking for. Um, across the 10 episodes that Kieran and I picked out, uh, we cover what effective altruism at its core really is. Uh, what the folks who are tackling a number of well-known problem areas are up to and why they've chosen those things, uh, some more unusual and speculative problems, and finally, how we and the rest of the team here uh, try to think through difficult questions as clearly as we possibly can. Of course, uh, as is usual for my interviews, uh, there's all sorts of other eclectic topics thrown in there as well. Like 80,000 Hours itself, uh, the selection leans towards a focus on long-termism, uh, though other perspectives are covered as well, especially early on. Another gap it might fill is in helping you recommend this show to other people uh, or suggest a way to learn more about effective altruist style thinking uh, to people who are a bit curious about it. 
if someone in your life wants to get an understanding of of what either 80,000 hours or or effective altruism are all about uh, and prefers to listen to things uh, rather than read them, uh, this is potentially a great resource to direct them to. You can find it by searching for effective altruism in your podcasting app uh, or by going to 80,000hours.org slash intro. We would uh, love to hear how you go listening to it yourself uh, or sharing it with other people you know. Of course, there's other introductions to effective altruist-flavored thinking that are out there as well. Will McCaskill's book, Doing Good Better, uh, is a good one. Uh, and naturally, there is an audiobook version. They haven't been written in 2014. Uh, it's a bit dated now, and, and it focuses much more on charitable giving and global poverty than we do. Toby Ord's The Precipice uh, covers a lot of similar material, uh, though that one's exclusively about threats to humanity's future, uh, and it has less to say about what listeners might do to take concrete action. Of course, there's our 80,000 Hours Key Ideas page, which, while very long, is still faster to read through. Uh, but that one can't offer kind of the same subtlety that you get over the course of uh, 10 real-life conversations. Oh, and uh, if you're looking for other options, uh, there's a range of other written and audio resources uh, that you can scan through at effectivealtruism.org. Anyway, uh, bottom line, we hope you like Effective Altruism, an introduction. Uh, you can let us know what you think by emailing podcast at 80,000hours.org. Uh, and if things go well, we may make an advanced course or, or some other follow-up in future. All right. Uh, the 80,000 Hours podcast is produced by Kieran Harris, audio mastering by Ben Cordell. Full transcripts are available on our website and made by Sophia Davis-Vogel. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon.